your ravens watch. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of The Raven's Watch. Today's guest is Paul of Understanding Conspiracy. Uh, I was cued into Paul's page pretty recently uh, by a Twitter user by the name of uh, Yahweh is Lord, I believe is his name. And um, I forget what the topic was and, and why he was commenting it, but I was sent over to your content and promptly discovered that you were talking about the Nephilim, and this really interesting connection between the Nephilim and this jester clown archetype. Uh, but I'm really interested in the Nephilim. Uh, my, I've been wanting to do an episode on it, and my audience hasn't been exposed to it. So I think this is going to be a good opportunity to sort of unpack uh, more or less a crash course. Who were the Nephilim? Where do they come from? You know, uh, the biblical context and... Uh, tracking them throughout history. I have my own ideas. I'm sure you have ideas. So this should be uh, a lot of fun. But before we get into that, Paul, can you please tell the audience uh, where to find your work and just a little bit about the nature of what you do? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, you can find my work on in YouTube. That's predominantly where I am. Um, I have actually just recently started the BitChute account as well. And I'm also on Odyssey. Um, if you want an alternative platform, uh, I don't have all of my videos on there fully yet. It's a long process, but I'm working on backing up everything on there. Um, and you can also find me on Telegram as well. Um, so that that's where you can find me um, in terms of what I do. You know, I'm I'm a theorist who's been on YouTube now for about the better part of a decade. Um, I came at all this stuff originally from a, a new age perspective um a psychedelic new age perspective i very much was in that scene of consciousness exploration as i think a lot of people were when they start uh, opening their eyes for the first time um and from there you know as time developed and as my channel grew and as my research got more in depth um i eventually basically became a born again christian and my research took a turn into um biblical history um alternative cosmologies, um, basically everything, uh, a Christian perspective you can imagine, suddenly everything I was viewing through that lens rather than the psychedelic New Age lens, and things started to make it have a lot more sense. Um, and as my research went on, as I grew as a channel, as I collaborated with more like-minded people and obviously people who have opposing views as well, um, I've, I eventually found this odd niche where um, I was talking about clowns and how the Nephilim themselves um, had similar features to what we would call a modern day clown. And uh, for the past seven years, I've been producing a very extensive, long, large body of work dedicated to exploring this concept. Um, and at first, you know, I thought it was just a small, a small thing. Um, the 2016 clown sightings happened and it triggered something in my brain. Um and I just something possessed me in a way, but we'll call it the Holy Holy Spirit, let's say. <laughs> but something led me to um, just do a, a cursory search, um, the Nephilim and clowns, to see if anybody had considered this concept before. Um, off the back of this bizarre appearance of clowns everywhere, and um, what made me make that choice to to put the two words together, Nephilim and clown, and do a search is is years of experiences. Maybe we'll get into as the podcast goes on. It was all a series of events that made just made me click and go, hang on, let's put these together. And 
I found a, a video of some person uh, who had made a, a mocking, joking conspiracy theorist video. So pretending to be a conspiracy theorist. It was like a skit, you know. And uh, they were basically talking about the Nephilim and the history of the Nephilim. And he, he concluded at the end of the video in a very mocking, joking, funny manner, like, um, the Nephilim are actually interdimensional killer clowns from out of space in that his history channel conclusion type tone, you know? Um, and suddenly something, it just kind of clicked in my mind, like, actually, I think this guy might be onto something. So I just started making connections. And um, like I said, here I am seven years later. Um, my work has been talked about by many other channels since. Um, someone called Conspiracy Arrows made his own little um, series based on my work, and that brought a lot of attention and traction to it as well. Um, and I have made about 38 episodes, working on the 39th now, just expanding on this concept. And um here to talk with you today about all my work. <laughs> yeah. That is wild that you could come to 39 episodes worth of material. I, I didn't know. Like I said, I only saw one of your videos and it was intriguing. And I, I very much uh, enjoyed the connections that you were making. I had no idea that you're talking 39 episodes. So uh, before we get into this, uh, and this is all very already my mind is going with this whole 2016 clown thing and, and what that was about. And I'm sure you have some ideas, uh, but I would like to hear a bit about what brought you to be born again uh, because I think that uh, as I progress down this path I've been looking at conspiracy theories and and the like for about 16 years and everything is sort of funneling me to the biblical context and how it is much more reliable and true than I would have given it credit for you know 16 years ago so I, I would be interested in hearing what was your journey like that brought you to be born again it's much the same as what you just described um you know i i wasn't raised religious in any way shape or form my mom and dad uh, just don't even think about it it's just not in the vocabulary to, to get religious same. about anything you know so it's just not something I grew up in in a world. I didn't go to a, a religious school. I went to public schools. Um, in England, it's popular for children to go to Catholic or Protestant schools. They're considered the best schools, in fact. So a lot of people go to church just so they're a member of a church, just so their children can get into the school that's attached to the church. And it's one of those type of things. But that's just not something I ever was ever in, you know. So I grew up with an atheistic mindset. Um, my friends were of the same ilk, you know, and it, it just it just wasn't a thing for me growing up. Um, I had a Catholic grandma. She took it very seriously, but uh, I never really considered it something as anything, you know. I remember I remember I have a distinct memory of going to church with her when I was a very young child, and an old woman in front of me passed out and hit her head on the arm of the wooden pew and died in front of me. So my experiences what? of church weren't good, you know. And I kind of grew up with that attitude of, you know, screw this God whatever it is, you know, if it's we're probably not even real anyway, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Um, so I, I, yeah, that's very much, in fact, a very anti-God growing up in high school, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, we took a thing called religious education in high school, well, at RE for short, and um, 
I had studied the Bible as much as I thought I had studied the Bible as a kid. You know, I, I basically gone onto a website called Bible Babble and thought I knew everything about what was wrong with the Bible all of a sudden. Um, but I, uh, I remember we had these things called like mock tests, um, which don't account to your real score, but it's an example of what you would get if you did go for the real exam type of thing. And I never took RE in the end, so it didn't matter to me, but I took the test anyway, and I, got, I did get an A. And I was very good at it, you know, because I kind of had an understanding of philosophical ideas. And it was easy for me to basically write an essay about why God isn't real, which is what I did. And I got a good mark for it because apparently at least I'm thinking, thinking, you know, I guess is what the teacher thought. And she was a devout Christian, funnily enough. So it's quite funny in that in that respect. <laughs> Looking back on it now in hindsight, you know, I guess in a way her forgiveness and love was quite um, commendable for my heinous attitude, you know. Um. So that's the kind of kid I grew up as, you know, a know-it-all egotistical prick, basically. I wasn't a very good person um, in that respect. Um, and as I got older and got more into my teenage years, I got heavily into uh, drug use. I was a heavy cannabis smoker, so nothing hard. You know, I wasn't injecting stuff into me. I wasn't that kind of drug user, but I was very much into that psychedelic consciousness exploration type of drug scene. Um, that that really interested me. It always has done. Um I'm an artist. Um, I've studied art my entire life, all through high school, through to college, and then through to university. I have my degree in fine arts. So I've always kind of just been in that creative, airy, colourful scene in the type of characters in that world that you meet going through the art schools. So are very much in that left-wing, liberal, creative, psychedelic, uh, drug-taking world, you know. So I've kind of, I've been a part of that, and that's, they were my people. Um... So, you know, as the years went on and I went to university, I left college, went to university to study art and moved away from home. I was right next to this huge cathedral in Lincoln is where I studied every day. And, you know, it was awe inspiring to me to see this 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 cathedral on a daily basis and have the honor to be able to, you know, make artwork next to it in a way. And um, during that time, I was going through a heavy use of um, partying every day. I mean, every day I was on MDMA cocaine, cannabis, smoking heavily as well, um, ex you know, taking um, mushrooms, DMT, um, LSD, 2CB, any, anything I could find that was remotely psychedelic and that I was exploring and I was going for hard. All my artwork at university was about that and exploring sacred geometry, Gnostic principles, uh, the nature of reality in the universe and the design of the universe specifically, how it's all connected with these geometrical principles and the platonic solids. And all my artwork was just that basically and hyper-focused on this. So I, I saw psychedelics as a tool to be able to see the true nature of reality and be able to somehow capture that in artwork form to convey how real the spiritual realm, we'll call it, or the design of reality truly is. Um, and around the time I was doing all this um I was I was empty you know I was getting less less of me was there and something else was happening you know and it got to the point where I wasn't smoking cannabis anymore and um, for me it, it was I didn't enjoy it and I wasn't smoking to get high I was smoking it to be normal so it was around this time I started to notice this type of thing. And I'd also begun researching conspiracy theories towards the end of my degree in the last year. And um, this is around 2012, 2011 period, actually. So a lot of my artwork started to become about the end of the world in 2012, you know, the Mayan calendar stuff. 
Um, and that got me into conspiracy theories. And basically, I, I went into making my channel and doing all this with a mindset of, well, what do these people see exactly that makes them believe the world's going to end? What is going on here? And I came at it from a solely psychological perspective. I wanted to immerse myself in everything, every bit of information. And what I would do is I will become the conspiracy theorist and fully humor everything to its end conclusion. And I won't question anything, you know, and I, I did this with the intention of at the end, I will come back out and do an analysis on what it means to be a conspiracy theorist, basically. And that'll be a performance piece for my um, end of year art show for my degree type of thing, you know. <laughs> Um, but what actually happened is I ended up becoming a full believer of the whole thing and realized it's all true, <laughs> which is what always <laughs> happens, you know. Um, so, you know, my, my egotistical, um, you know, reasonings behind all of this um, went out the window when I actually started to do it, you know. And as the university ended, I had this channel and I was seeped in, in research of all things occult related, you know, and just end of the world related, symbology related, Illuminati related, everything conspiracy you can imagine. I'd, I'd seen it all and I'd done it all and I'd researched it all f for a purpose of work. You know, it was actually something I had, I had to do. So I was, I was very serious about it. And I was struggling with this thing of, I can't keep ignoring the biblical perspective, which is clearly has all the answers. <laughs> like, and the, the answer is satisfactory from the new age perspective. It's all... Um, vain pontification and articulation, word salad nonsense made up just to try kind of for people to make their own idea of reality and their own gods, which explain the things that are going on, but it's not real satisfactory truth or answers. To me, it wasn't anyway. Um, and obviously I'd been doing all this psychedelic exploration and I knew there's, there's a spiritual world. I couldn't deny it. You know, I'd, I'd seen it for myself it was one of those sort of things so I, I was having this internal struggle of well if they believe in the devil and lucifer they take it very seriously then surely the opposite should exist too right and these people are powerful influential people who believe this like it, there must be there must be something going on you know and it was a struggle it was a huge internal struggle for me because i didn't want to let go of those things that this first of all the belief that i'm i'm a god and i'm incredibly intelligent and wonderful and brilliant and i have all the answers because we're all just gods you know reflections of the whole type of thing i was heavily seeped in alan watts and a terence mckenna philosophy and, and all this type of stuff you know and um meditation type stuff I, I would never call myself like a hippie i was never that type of person you know um I couldn't stand those people either, you know, but I was very much uh, an analytical thinker about the, all of it. I was trying to get to the bottom of what what is this this realm I keep seeing when I take these drugs and what what is going on, you know? So at the end of uni, I was basically drained of all my energy because all the heavy drug use. I was at rock bottom. I was jobless. I had nothing. I was back at home. Um, I was heavily addicted to cannabis and I had all these things going on. And it got to a moment where I kind of, I just, I just... I was actually um, at a, a stag do, we call it, um, in the UK. My brother-in-law was getting married to my sister and we were out partying before the wedding. And we were in this city called Newcastle, which is nowhere near where I live, but it was just a random place we went, you know. And I remember we we did a heavy night of partying and I was, it was the next day, the day we were going home and people have been asking me, like, what are you doing next, you know? And it's kind of like, well, you know, I've got to, I've got one more term at uni, then I've got to come back home, I guess, you know. And 
I hadn't really been thinking about the future, you know, and it, it kind of all built upon me. And I realized that I don't, I don't have a clue who I am, what I believe or what's going on. I was a mess, you know, like all these beliefs in this new age stuff has got me nowhere. Um, but then brought me nothing but pain and misery and, and no answers as much as I wanted to believe I had all the answers type of thing. And I, this is the weird thing. I, I, I inadvertently baptized myself at this hotel. I didn't mean to. So <laughs> that's what happened. Um, I basically, I had done all my research, you know, and I was on this teetering on the edge of going for God and Christianity and believing and just letting him take over, you know, but I didn't want to let go of my, my vices, my hold, like I mentioned earlier, my belief, you know, that I could do it all and I had all the answers and I could sort it all out type of thing. Um, but I, I was, I was done. I had no energy left. I drained myself probably heavily demonized by this point. I realized, you know what I mean? I was possessed basically by all these spirits uh, is what I kind of interpret as now that made me hold on to this for so long. But, um, I had a bath in this hotel room and for context, I'd only ever lived in a house with a shower cubicle for 15 years. So I hadn't actually had a bath in 15 years. I didn't even go swimming. You know what I mean? I hadn't gone underwater in a very long time. Um, but I basically just said to God, God, I give up. Just, just help me. I give it to you now. I'm putting you in control. I'm done. Uh, help me figure out what I need to do in my life. What's next? What's, what am I doing? You know? And I was having these thoughts in these moments while I went under. And then suddenly my body just jolted with this energy all through my chest, all through my head, everything. I, I leaped out of the bath because I thought I was having a panic attack. <laughs> like, and I ran to the wind, like the mirror, like breathing heavily and the feeling kind of dissipated quickly. And I, I, did, I didn't have a clue what that was in the moment. Like, and I was like, okay, no, that was crazy. You know, and, I, and I've done some trippy things. That was crazy. You know, I've never experienced anything like that before. I'd never taken anything that gave me that kind of feeling before. Um, and then from that day, I think it was 2014, I think. Um, it must have been in summer, if I remember correctly. I, may, I don't know. I can't remember the last term was. I did have the day written down somewhere. I've forgotten. I think maybe it was April. I'm not sure. But that day in 2014, I've kind of just changed. I'm not who I was then anymore. Um, I, I'm i sober, completely sober. I don't smoke nicotine or anything, anything anymore. It took a while. I first stopped with cannabis. I ended up going cold turkey in 2016, so two years later. And I haven't gone back since. And that's going from eight joints a day, every day, for eight years, you know. Um that was hard. I documented it all on YouTube, but it all got taken down because it went against the policies. But um, I went through that process and I sobered up and uh, I've dropped nicotine since this year. It took, it took me nine years to fully get off it, but I have just got rid of my electronic cigarette at the start of this year and I'm clean off that now. And my faith has just gotten stronger since and um, my research came with it. All this clown stuff, which has only edified my faith even more in the truth of the biblical history and all that. And um I guess that's, I was born again that day and my life has changed, just changed for the better. I'm now, you know, I'm married. I have a beautiful son. Um, I'm self-employed. I have my own, you know, everything's just kind of got better since that day. And um, I can't prove to anybody that God exists, but I can tell you my story that I know from, from myself, you know, and um, all you had to, all I had to do was just ask for help. 
that's kind of what it came to. Um, so yeah, that's that's my backstory. That's how I became a Christian, and that's where I am now. That is, excuse me, that is an an, an excellent story. Uh, and there's so many parallels, um, and I'm sure this is this probably rings true for anybody who's um, coming around to God and and the Bible, but also through I, I often say through the back door because it's not the traditional route, right? We're not just going to church and being saved there and and taking at face value the things that we're told. We sort of slip in through the occult and through the paranormal and through the conspiratorial. Um, There are a lot of parallels in in our stories, and I won't harp on it too long. I do want to get into the material, but uh, when I was younger, um, I was also very much into... Uh, weed, ecstasy. Um, I had my brush with mushrooms. I, I think where you and I deviate is I never, I also had uh, n- not a religious upbringing, but I never had any disdain for it at all. It was it was strange. Nobody ever pushed it on me. It wasn't part of my household. And yet I always just had this feeling of like, hmm, could be. But I am also a very analytical person and my mother is like science driven, logic driven facts. Um, she loves research. So anything that she's doing, it all has to be backed up by studies. And so she, uh, never really had a place in our conversations for, for God or anything like that. And yet I didn't have any sort of disdain for the concept. And, um, you know, over time, what you said earlier certainly rings true, right? It's like these, if you research for enough time, you will come to the conclusion that there certainly is entities within whatever it is. If it's our government, if it's Hollywood, these, these, the, the tired old, old expression of the elites, these people do believe in something, some sort of higher power that they worship, call it what you want. If it's Satan or Moloch or Baal or any of the names that these various entities go by, uh, they believe that it's real. And through enough research, you will see its marking left everywhere. For me, it was in particular the music industry in Hollywood, where I was seeing all these symbols. Um, and I, and I think for a lot of people, that is one of the earliest red flags are these symbols that repeat themselves through pop culture and, you know, everything that we consume on a regular basis. And once you start to draw the correlation between the symbols and the people that are using them and the deities that they worship, it becomes very difficult to ignore. And for me in particular, it was throw in a, a, a couple of paranormal experiences and and it became undeniable to me personally. Um, and I like what you said about how you can't prove to a person that God is real. You can only prove to yourself. And it's a very personal journey. And if you were to say, well, how, how does it, how does one uh, get proven to that God exists? It is unique to every individual. And so, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't quantify that. And I can't give you that. And, and only I can hope that you can go through the things with an open enough mind that you come out of the other end. All right. Uh, but yeah, there's very much uh, this notion that I've always felt where if one side of the coin is real, which it very much appears to be, this darkness, right? Then the flip side of the coin has to be real as well. And so that was very much my 
um, coming into the biblical context, coming into a relationship with Jesus and God uh, through the back door, you know, not not through the and I still you know, I'm still on that journey. I have a lot of trouble. Um, I had somebody on recently who his name was Donnie Darkened. Uh, that was what he went by on, on Twitter. And he drew all of these connections between the biblical Antichrist and uh, and Donald Trump. And whether or not you believe him, it was still very compelling and very interesting. And he had a lot of you know evidence to back it up. Um, but I found myself struggling just because I'm so I, I lack um, biblical knowledge, textbook knowledge. Like I own a Bible, but I've not gotten around to reading it. And so I'm still kind of like looming around the back door taking in all this occult symbolism and all of these various conspiracy theories and uh, and using that to bolster my relationship with God. But really, I know that I should probably be looking at the word itself instead of uh, hanging out at the back door anymore. It's like somebody who's going to a club and I'm just hanging out with the bouncer at the back door instead of going into the club and learning what the club's about. Um, so with all that being said, I, I would very much like to, if you could take the audience through sort of a crash course as to what the Nephilim are. Um, you know, I have a, a pretty decent understanding of it, but I've never articulated it. And I think that you would be much better at me than doing that. And so I would like to go there if you are uh, prepared. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no problem. Well, first of all, it's just a few points you hit there about um, our stories being similar. I would find from my experience, because another part of my channel is called a truth of therapy session. I do a weekly show and it's basically a, a forum or a hub or a place where people who have learned the truth can share their stories um, and basically create a community to help support each other. Because learning the truth is a terrible, scary thing that makes you lose all your friends and families and loved ones. Um, <laughs> I, try, I try to give advice on how to tackle the subjects better with friends and family so that you don't lose them, but also how to deal with and cope with the bridges you've already burned, unfortunately, all these type of things. Um, and the stories I always get told to me are very similar to what I just said and to what you're saying. You know, you come at it from this the back door through the occult, coming out of something completely opposite to Christianity, then making your way there, not being raised that way, but learning it through the truths you learn online through the conspiracy culture. Um, and, you know, I, the inevitable conclusion always is, and they always end up saying this, you know, it, it always comes back to Jesus and God and the biblical narrative. And that's kind of the story, the script we're all playing out on the earth, you know. Um, and it all comes through, like you said, they made the choice to learn. Okay, so it's not something you can just be taught. You have to want to know. You have to make the step yourself personally to go on the journey to get there. It's kind of God's not going to give you the time or day unless you treat your serious type of attitude. You know, he's not going to waste his time with somebody who isn't actually sincere and wants to know. It's that type of thing. So this is why I said you can't quantify it, but it's a personal journey. Um, and it's the same. I just hear the same story told to me over and over again. I just thought it was interesting that you're going through the similar path as well. Um, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I hope you come in eventually and get away from the back door. You know, maybe I can convince you today <laughs> as best I can, you know, with some, with a bit of information. So a lot of things that, that stop people from taking that step towards Christianity is this understanding that um, 
God is a cruel and vindictive um, genocidal maniac who flooded the earth because he the, he didn't like the way people were acting, even though he's supposed to give them free will and they're allowed to act however they want, blah, blah, blah. They have this attitude. There's all these things going on in the Bible which seem heinous at the time when you read them, and it's kind of what I don't want to follow a, a God that acts like this type of stuff. And a lot of the contention does come from the pre flood stories and the idea of adam and eve incest all this type of stuff to populate the earth you know um you know but i don't know killing in after the flood or killing all of the um the canaanites just and the amalekites just slaughter them all men women and children everything absolutely annihilate them from the face of the earth you know um and it's all taken out of context i realized because i was there you know I, I i was there with those type of beliefs that held you back from kind of considering it and a lot of people have picked up a lot of Gnostic ideas and a lot of ideas that, you know, um, the Sumerian texts take precedence over the Bible because it came first. Therefore, the Bible is just a ripoff of the older text from Sumeria and these tablets. A lot of people have that kind of thing holding them back. And I would say to that, first of all, it's um, it's a misunderstanding of how oral traditions work. Just because something was written down first doesn't necessarily mean it's an older story. Um it's 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 not and it just doesn't mean as well just because somebody wrote it down their story is the truth as well there's a lot of people need to kind of let that go and obviously i think there's a lot of agendas out there to make people go for anything but god anything but christianity and you'll find a lot of the conspiracy points to this idea that it's it's all anti-christ that's kind of the point of it you know and it, as long as they can get you believing anything else but that they can kind of maintain the control and power. But back to the point, let's, let's start from the beginning. We'll start with the story of Adam and Eve. So this is, if you want to talk about the Nephilim, you do have to go back to the very beginning. And you have to even go before Adam and Eve, to be honest. Let's go back to the rebellion of the angels. Uh, so I am what, what, what we would call a, a Christian contrarian. I don't follow the mainstream churchianity interpretation of a lot of these things that you see in the Bible. Um, I very much walk in the same belief system and veins as a researcher called Gary Wayne. And a lot of what he says on this topic, I do I do agree with. Um, and I'm going to try and paint a picture for you. I'm going to tell a story. OK, and this is this is the biblical historical narrative as I understand it to be. OK, um, and this is this will go against certain mainstream church understandings of certain events. So it's not going to be the typical story you would get taught in Sunday school. But this is. From my research, the book I'm writing on this currently, The Nephilim Like Clowns, this is where my research has taken me. So this this is it. So we know that in the, I'm not going to go into too much metaphysical detail about the, the creation process itself. That's a whole other book. That's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other thing. But let's just go at this, that, you know, in the beginning when things were being created, it does seem like the angels that were with God were the original beings on this creation, whatever form it took then, it was probably very different from the form that we have today. Um, and the angels were the first creations, the first sons of God, let's say. Now they were on the earth and it does seem like there was people there before Adam and Eve. Okay, so this is known as uh, the pre-Adamites or the people of day six theory. Because in the Bible, in Genesis, um, it does say, you know, God created man and woman, plural, together at once at the same time and he told them to go forth and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and subdue all the animals and basically be um, caretakers of the earth but he created them and told them to spread so he probably created many men and women plural together 
and scatter them abroad. And it does seem like that the, the fallen native, well, we're not quite fallen yet, but the angels at the time were there as watchers to watch over the caretakers of the earth and be as gods in a sense to this creation that God had made. And they were probably more likely seen as gods during this time, you know, but walked on the earth with the people. Giants, you know, these these glowing giant serpent-like winged psychedelic creatures were gods among men during this time. Now, it seems like something happened along this time. We don't know how much time passed necessarily between the creation of these people and the creation of Adam and Eve. But according to Genesis, it's literally just on the next sentence. It's right, they're right next to each other. But there's plenty you know, of contextual evidence to say that a lot of time had probably passed by this point. Enough time for the angels to have established themselves as the gods among men and be quite happy with their positions, um, taking precedence above mankind. And then God made a choice. He created Adam and then put Adam in a garden separate from everything else at uh, the garden, you know, in within Eden. So it seems like Adam was a separate creation. Now, I don't know if Adam was a different creation from the men that were already there, the men and women, or if he was a, a kind of like a human being 2.0. I don't know that. And I don't think we can know that. And I think it could be dangerous to speculate that that was the case. Well, let's just assume he was just another human being like the rest. But he was just selected and chosen out of them as somebody God decided, I am going to share information with this human. I'm going to basically groom this human to be a leader of men, to be a king on earth, to rule over humanity. Um, and then he started to basically, he said to Adam, I want you to name all the animals. Now, not even the angels were given the honor of naming all of the animals. And I don't think a lot of angels who were on Earth as watchers didn't like this. They did not like watching God choose a primitive slave from their perspective to be take precedence over their rulership. They did. They were not happy. And this is where the rebellion comes from. This is the rebellion of the angels. This is the core root cause of why the rebellion happened. And Lucifer was a leader of this. Now, angels have a hierarchy. And what we can understand from reading the Bible in Ezekiel specifically and in Enoch is that the seraphim are right next to God in the hierarchy of angels. They're there with the throne of God. They have six wings and they use the wings to cover their eyes and their appendages and their face and everything to not be killed by the glory of God, let's say, the, the light, the vision. And next to them are the cherubim. Then it goes lower and lower and lower at different classes of angels below them. And the archangels are just below all of that. And then it goes down to lesser angels below that. And they all have the place and role to play within the creation. It said that the stars are angels. Every star is an angel, basically. And it has its place. It has to be and it has to follow the cycle. And that's its role within the creation. Now, angelic beings aren't pretty young men with wings and white robes. They're not, they're not physical entities. They are energy frequency light they are conscious yes but they also don't have a physical form they're shapeshifters they can take whatever form they want they don't have to eat or drink or anything you know they are beyond the physical in that sense but they can also manifest physical so the nature of reality is extremely a lot more trippy from the biblical perspective than i think a lot of people understand it to be so the, it says here a third of the angelic hosts were convinced to rebel with lucifer who was a seraphim angel who was next to God. So that means even a third of the seraphim angels rebelled against God. These are the highest form of angelic being. And it seems like they came down to earth. And basically from that rebellion, from that refusal to follow God's will to, you know, bow down to Adam, help him, they were basically cast into earth in a sense. 
but they didn't really do much for a while. I think it seems like from the narrative that I'm seeing, they sat back for a little bit, okay, and they re regrouped and thought, what are we going to do? Okay, we're in a bad situation now, and they were extremely furious about their demotion, let's say, and and at mankind for taking God's adulation away from them, the true sons of God, you know, that type of thing. And this this lesser creation, this physical beast is, is above us, the, the serpentine seraphim. God chose a mammal over a serpent to be the ruler over mankind. You know, it's that type of attitude. Um, it was jealousy and pride. Was, and that's what Lucifer is synonymous with being, the most prideful, jealous thing in existence, you know, and it was his pride that made him fall. It was that type of thing. Um, he didn't want to stop being seen as a god, basically. He wanted to be as god, above god in, in a sense. So that happened. The rebellion happened. Adam was there in the garden. So what happened, it seems, is a serpent came to Eve and convinced her to rebel against God. You could say, eat the apple, get the knowledge. You can go into the metaphysics of what that means exactly. Um, but the point is, he basically, God said, don't do something. He convinced her to do it. That's the key takeaway from that, okay? Uh, perhaps the apple or the fruits gave us some kind of knowledge and did something psychedelic to the way they perceive reality. You can go into all that if you want, but the core issue is that she went against God's word. She believed a liar over God and then lied to God afterwards when caught out for it. You know, it was it was just rebellion in its pure form, basically. Um, now, it's described that a serpent came. Now, people interpret this as the devil came into the garden and convinced him. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says a serpent came. And if we understand that the seraphim class angels, which are described as serpentine angels, the word seraph means burning, as in the bite of a viper or the bite of a snake. And it's used interchangeably throughout the Bible to represent a snake, the word seraph, which the seraphim angels are named after. Um, so it it also says in the book of Amran, which is a, um, a testament within the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, now, Amran, I think, if I can remember correctly, was the grandfather of um, Methuselah or Moses. Or so, I, can't, I can't remember exactly. But he had a vision in which two angels came to him, which was um, Bel Belial is described, which is another name for Lucifer. If you look, in that, look through all the names and the many names of demons and gods and Belial, it's synonymous with Satan and Lucifer, basically. And he's described in this book of Amran as having the face like a viper um, and also like an and the skin like an adder. So a black and white fractal psychedelic looking snake monster, basically, is what this thing looked like with multicolored robes. So we know that these Lucifer, at least himself, was of the serpent kin, of a serpentine nature in its natural form. Um, and we can see serpent worship all throughout ancient history, never mind biblical texts and serpent gods all over the place, which were these watcher class angels originally. So anyway, a serpent comes. So I, I think it, what it's talking about here, and this seems the research indicates that there was some kind of serpent race around during that time, upright walking, humanoid shaped like serpent people. They weren't angels, but maybe they were a, a creation of the angels. I don't know, you know, but it seemed like they took after them in some way. And it's kind of like birds of a feather flock together. It's almost as though Lucifer had convinced the serpent race on Earth of serpent-like people to go against the humans. Do you get what I mean? It's kind of like you're a part of us. We are one with us. We're serpents like you. Work with us on this. Can you get to the garden? Can you get in there? They were allowed in there, clearly. It wasn't a problem then. 
And can you convince God's little creation over there to, to, to take a bite of that apple for me, if that's all right? It seems like that's what happened. And the serpent was cursed for doing this. And um, it says, you know, um, you'll now have to walk on all uh, on your belly for the rest of your life and eat the dust. So that implies it had appendages. It had limbs at some point, which are being removed from it now as a race, as, as a class. Um, and it also says, you know, I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. So this implies something else that may ha- may have happened. Now, I don't know, but it, it implies that the serpent may have actually um, produced with Eve, had sex with Eve in some way, maybe, and created some kind of race, a serpentine, half-human, half-serpent race of some kind. We don't know for sure if that's the case, but that's a highly popular thought process within Christian conspiracy circles. Um, I, I, I don't think myself it 100 percent matters if it's true or not and uh, what kane's actions speak for themselves regardless whether that was the case or not in in the future iterations after this but what we know is this rebellious act caused by uh, interference from a serpent type race caused adam and eve to be expelled from the garden and cast out into the earth now they're in the earth with all the people that were originally there they're just one with all the other people now um, but they were a very distinct race don't forget that adam had learnt a lot he walked with god he knew information he knew stuff you know and um so did his children the first children you know cain and abel now cain killed abel out of a sacrifice comparison issue you know and also out of cain not really doing the sacrifice properly type of thing in the out of jealousy he murdered his brother and you know that caused him to be cast out into the earth. So I'm summarizing quick, quickly going along here. There's a lot of stuff you can go into about how that happened and what was going on. But Cain basically said, if you do this to me, I'll get murdered. Now, who was going to murder Cain exactly if there was no people there? If it was just they were the first offspring? Who? You know, what is going to happen? And it says, you know, no worry, I'm going to give you a mark so everyone will know not to kill you. If they kill you, they'll be cursed even worse. You know, um, now I've theorized and I've done some research recently and I've, I've mentioned made a video about this, but it does seem from some extra canonical pseudepigraphical texts. It infers that perhaps this mark um, and this isn't con- this has been contested for thousands of years. I don't have the answer, but I have a theory that the mark was extremely white, porcelain, leprous, sickly colored skin. So not like me, not like a pink ginger like myself. I'm talking vampiric dead gray white like white like a porcelain doll white like covered in dust type of white um and it's said in the book of lamech son of um son of the the what is it the the book of lamech of cain and leviathan is called it's this it was it's this ancient text that's kind of been held by the vatican and released recently which is the perspective of one of the descendants of cain and he talks repeatedly about this mark being white skin and how it disappeared by the seventh generation, because that's how long the curse was said to be. And his daughter was of the seventh generation, and she didn't have the mark anymore. It's, it's, it's said distinctly in this book. Now, bear that in mind, white skin. That will become important later, because we're talking about clowns who have white face paint. So, you know, let's, let's remember that point there. It ties into the whole theory, really. Um, but Cain then goes off into the land of Nod and builds a city called Enoch, named after his first son, because he took a wife after leaving. Who did he take a wife with if there's no people on Earth? You know, people argue, oh, it must have been his sister or something, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't tell you he was his sister or his family members. He went off, 
found a wife, had a child, built a city, named it after the, the, the child. How did he build a city? And who was going to populate this city if there weren't people everywhere? You know, and it's these people that were already here, the people of day six. And these were quite simple people. They were childlike people. They didn't know much. They were, you know, they were hunter gatherers, very basic. We call them like cavemen if you want, but, you know, they, they didn't, the earth was a different place then. And they were very simplistic people. They didn't have a lot of knowledge. They didn't have concepts of ownership or land and all this type of stuff, you know. And it says in um, other extra biblical texts like Jasher and Jubilees, you know, Cain taught them how to measure things. He introduced weights and measures. And that's an extremely important thing because as soon as you introduce weights and measures, you're introducing money, currency, land ownership, property, and you're bringing greed, corruption, and things like that into people's mind. The concept of ownership, this is mine, not yours type of stuff. Um, and obviously with those skills as well, you can build cities. So I think he taught the people how to build monuments, cities, all this sort of stuff. He was like a god among men. He had knowledge men did not have. And he looked terrifying. He had this white skin. He looked insane, you know, and he had all this knowledge. And he's, you know, he's he's from Adam. And everyone knows Adam is this this thing that God had in the garden for ages. It was just, you know, it was, they were a distinct class of people. So the Bible is wholly concerned with genealogies. It follows from the beginning the lineage of Seth, which is obviously the next child after Abel was murdered and Cain was exiled. And it follows the lineage of Cain meticulously all the way down to the flood of Noah. And then after that, we have from Noah going all the way down to Jesus, basically the lineage, the bloodline to make sure it wasn't corrupted is why it's trying to make it clear all the way down to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. It's trying to make clear that the bloodline was pure from Adam from the beginning not this other strange bloodline which was happening around the same time, which is through the lineage of Cain. Now, by the sixth generation of Jared, so this is the lineage of Seth, by the sixth generation we get to Jared, this is when the Watchers get involved again. So they've been watching for a while, it seems, and they've watched Cain, who's possibly a serpent seed himself, mentioning what may have happened in the Garden of Eden. They've been watching him closely, and he is dominating the land. He is creating cities everywhere. He is subduing the people. He is angry with God. He hates the creation just as much as they do. I think it's kind of like a an enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. They come to him, and they basically make a deal, it seems, of some kind, or maybe by force, and Cain just let it happen. He didn't really fight it as an issue. Um, but they basically had sex with the daughters of Cain. That's what happened. And it seems like Lucifer, along with an angel called Samai, uh, Samyaza, convinced a good portion of the Watchers who were still on Earth by this point, who hadn't rebelled, to have sex with the women, basically. He convinced them to do it. And maybe playing off their lusts or, as, I don't know, he's, he's the master of lies. He must have lied to them or something. Oh, God won't be angry with you. Be fine with it or something like that. We don't know exactly what was said. But we know that from the Book of Enoch, they made a pact saying, you know, I'm afraid none of you are going to do this thing with me. So let's make an oath, like a blood oath that they can't break, that we're all going to do this thing together. So maybe they did know. Maybe they were a part of the rebellion originally. And they knew this step is really going to piss God off. This is going to be worse than the original rebellion, what we're about to do. But let's make a pact that we're going to do this. Okay. And that's what in the book of Enoch, they're basically saying this to each other. Like, are we, are we ready, guys? Are we, are we seriously going to do this? You know, and it's like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So they do. And what do they produce? They produce offspring. And these offspring became giants. These are the Nephilim. So the Nephilim are part Cain, 
lineage who bore the mark, which would be leprous white skin, possibly, mixed with seraphim-class serpentine angels. Now, can you imagine what a serpent and a human with a leprous white skin would look like when mixed together? It would look something like a clown. Okay. This is where the source of the, the theory comes from. All right, and we're going to build from here from now, and we'll explain as time goes on, okay? So this is let's just finish off the biblical history portion. So Nephilim are now around, and this is before the flood, okay? Now, first, they were seen as gods among men. Mighty men of renown is described in Genesis 6, you know, heroes. These things were giants who were slaying monsters for people and were basically, you know, admired at first as, as mighty specimens of, of brilliance. They're part angel, they're part man. They're like, what are these things? You know, it was a wonder. Um, but they kept growing. And humans couldn't support them in terms of food because they were just ridiculously large and ravenous. Um, and their nature was rebellious, just like the parents, the fallen angels, and Cain himself, who was the first murderer, you know. It seems like they were just a corrupt people. And uh, they started eating humans. It even says that. They started eating one another and the people and drinking the blood and doing all sorts of horrible things to animals and humans alike, you know, where they were just destroying the beasts of the field, the land, the humans. They were just dominating. And they, they took over. They became the kings over all of mankind. And uh, these two bloodlines are still going on. And there's still this, you know, this righteous line of God as well at the other side. And you know, they were doing their own thing. They weren't dominating the land, building cities. They were quite agrarian, working with the land, quite harmonious with it, vegetarian in that, you know, they were, they didn't drink blood and eat meat, all this sort of thing. You know, they stayed as pure as they possibly could while living in a world full of this extreme corruption going on, where they were just doing awful things inspired by their rebellious parents, the gods, the watchers, and Cain himself, you know, they were inspired by that. And um, it, it seems that you can find parallels to these stories in other other, other mythologies, like the Greek mythology. We're talking about um, the demigods and the gods of Olympus. What we're talking about there are Nephilim, and the Watcher Class Angels. It's a parallel. It's the same story. Um, can, I, can I interrupt? Of course, go ahead. Um, I, I, I do want to ask you specifically about that because I've been on this kick lately where it's like you can find these common threads throughout these different names, right? The idea of uh, Satan, Saturn, and Kronos, or the idea of Zeus, Jupiter, and Baal. Uh, mm -hmm. So Baal... I, I believe was one of the fallen angels. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but he is uh, also regarded as the storm king, coincidentally enough. And there are these images where you can find uh, uh, a, an image of Zeus with this sort of um, device, three prongs on either side. Yeah. And then you can find Baal with the same object in his hand. So there's sort of this insinuation that it, it really is the same character. Uh, and and I believe that even where the gods overthrew the Titans and locked them in uh, Tartarus, is it? That is also a, a word that's used in the Bible to represent uh, sort of the underworld. Am I right? Uh, yeah, yes. See, the problem is with the analogies of like the Greek pantheon is the gods who supposedly killed the Titans and put them in Tartarus are seen as the good guys. Okay, but yeah. it's kind of like it's it's a mashup that story of what really happened. It's not the whole truth. It's a way of um, 
the angels that remained positioned themselves still as the gods above men afterwards, okay, by retelling the story from that they were the ones who punished the evil ones and put them in Tartarus. But what truly happened is this story. So all of creation got corrupted because certain angels decided, 200 worth of angels decided to mate with humans and create the Nephilim. And the Nephilim became evil, corrupted, and the whole land was just filled with blood and death and misery at the, the hand of these monsters that had been made. And these monsters, these Nephilim, had children of their own, which became Nephil, which were a bit shorter, but still fierce, horrible monsters. And then those Nephil had children of their own, which were called the Eliud, and they were slightly shorter, but still monstrous and horrible. And the generations went on, they were mixing with animals, they were creating monster-human hybrids, animal-human hybrids. These are all the mythical animals we see throughout mythology, like the sirens, um, you know, the centaurs, the uh, the fawns, the pan, all these type of things, the fairy folk, all these half human, half animal hybrids everywhere were created during this time because of the knowledge given to them by the watcher class angels down to the Nephilim, down to the people. And it's kind of, if you're a human living in this world where there's death and pain and fierce monsters everywhere all around you, you need to do something to yourself to survive. And it was look at these giants who are surviving in this world and thriving. I need to be more like them. And they were worshipped as gods, you know, so it's kind of how do I become like them? Well, they took the offer from them to get their genetics manipulated to become like a mini Nephilim in a sense, a faux Nephilim, a, a human-animal chimerid hybrid with powers of certain animals, but the consciousness that you originally had, let's say. And I don't know how this was done. We just know it says it was done. So it could have been clinical, cold, surgical, if you want to go down that route. But I think this was a more magical time. I think a lot of it's a lot more to do with matrix manipulation. You know, like say in the matrix, you can just make something happen like that because you mess with the code. I think the angels have abilities to do things like that because they're beyond our dimension. I think it's more of a case of I could make you like that just by tweaking a few things behind the realm scene that'll make it manifest physical to you physically. I think a lot of that was going on as well. But I think there was also raping of animals and all sorts of stuff happening. Maybe um, divine semen can literally make an animal pregnant and then the offspring is a hybrid, hybrid mix. It's not like us, it's something else. I don't know exactly, but this was happening. So all, all this horror was happening. Everything was so messed up that Noah was literally the only one left in the end of that lineage. Even all of the good people were dead, murdered, slaughtered, or had converted. Seth's lineage was gone. Noah was the only one left. And it was the case of, we're going to flood it and try and reset this and do the best we can to get back to normal. Okay, so the flood reset all of this. But before the flood, there was this 200-year period where the Nephilim, the big ones, were removed from the earth. And a punishment was sent to the angels who did this. So the punishment is as so, and it's even described in the Book of Enoch that Michael, the archangel, witnessed it and was shaking in fear at what he had just seen God do to these angels. It was so terrifying. And basically he made the angels who created the Nephilim watch their own children, the Nephilim, the original ones, murder each other. The Nephilim weren't very smart. They were all wanted to be the only king, the only ruler, and they pretty much just fought with each other over the petty power struggles and were ripping each other apart, slaying each other as the, as the watchers just had to watch. But then the, the Nephilim weren't happy with just trying to rule the earth. They wanted to be the only gods. So they turned against the watchers, their own parents, and tried to kill them as well. So the watchers had to kill their own children and watch their own children 
kill each other. That was their punishment. And then they were bound in chains until the end, until the final judgments, the watchers were. And the Nephilim who died, their spirits remained on earth, disembodied. Their soul is not compatible with anything outside of the earth, higher or lower. They have to remain on earth. They were, they're not supposed to exist. So that's what demon spirits are. They are the disembodied spirits of these now dead Nephilim entities. Um, and what was left was the, as I mentioned earlier, the generations really far down from the original Nephilim, the Eliud and the Elio and the, um, the Nephil were left and humans were left. But the big Nephilim, the first OGs, the original ones, gone. The first, no, the firstborn Nephilim were all dead, slaughtered, and the angels who made them were bound in chains. That's the story of the Olympians killing the Titans and bounding them underground in Tartarus. But the that story implies that there was a pantheon of good gods who put all the bad ones in chains underground. But what really happened is God slaughtered them all. The ones that didn't have sex with humans, the angels, they got to stay. They weren't bound in chains, but they were still around. So they continued to spread lies about what truly happened. And they created these pantheonistic stories like we get of the gods in Mount Olympus, you know, bounding the evil monsters in chains. You know, they, they position themselves as the heroes afterwards, after God did his judgment. You know, they, they're still just lying to the people to maintain themselves as the pantheon, the gods, the only gods. And that's where sun worship comes from. You know, worship the sun, worship us, worship the pantheons, worship the sun, worship anything, worship the creation. All pagan beliefs all come from, stem from this idea of to spite God in this time. Don't focus on him, focus on us. We're right here, right now. You know, we are brilliant. We are tall. We are glowing. We are fantastic. You know, we, we will give you anything you want. You know, we'll give you all the pleasures. Just pray to us, make idols to us, and we'll come to you, that type of thing. That was all going on then. And that's why God was like, I just need to reset the whole thing. <laughs> I just, I, this is done for. Like, in a sense, the angels did a good job at what they set out to do. But God had a plan. He preserved humanity within Noah, you know, and that's what the flood was for, is to wipe them out. Now, obviously, the Nephilim came after the flood. Most of the Old Testament is about killing them, getting rid, getting rid of the remnants of this corruption, this, this Nephilim race that shouldn't exist. Um, you know, the rebellion came pretty quickly after the flood and Nimrod created the tower to try and get to heaven to kill God again. It was all, it was all happening again because the Nephilim did survive. Um, and it wasn't the original Nephilim, you know, the ones, the really big clown looking monster serpent human things. It was these lesser Nephilim, the, the generations diluted down. It was the people who had changed their corrupted DNA. If you, if you're a half human, half fish, you can survive a flood. You can breathe underwater. You can wait it out. You know, if you're a person who can fly now because you're half bird, half human, you'll fly above the rain. You know, you'll wait it out. You'll float on the water once the, you know, <laughs> you will survive. You'll find a way. If you've mixed yourself with a bear or an insect, you have hard chitin that's impenetrable, you know, or you breathe through your skin by bringing ox through oxygenation instead of through gill or through gills instead of needing lungs, or you can hibernate under underground for extremely long periods of time without food. All sorts of genetic traits you've, you've picked up from mixing yourself. You'll find a way to make it through the flood. Okay, and that is what happened, and there's plenty of evidence to show that, you know, th these myths of monsters, cryptids we call them, still exist today, where people have experiences with these strange creatures, you know, that are kind of like a humanoid monster-animal thing of some kind. They're still here, you know, and they, they made it through, and 
most of the Bible is about getting rid of the the ones who made civilizations. So Canaan, for example, was just rife with them. Giants everywhere. Reports of giants coming back from the people of Israel, God's new chosen people. And he chose them to get rid of these this corruption that still made it through the floods. That's what all this genocide is about that I was mentioning earlier. You know, it was this this attempt to cleanse the land of the remnants of this corruption from before the flood. It was God finishing what he intended to do <laughs> to begin with. You know, he knew he wasn't going to get rid of them all in one go. But what he did do was utterly disrupt the infrastructure. The kingdoms were gone. Their ability to just convince people that they were the gods were gone. They had reset the whole thing. And a new order was established, I suppose, well, after that flood, you know. And there's loads of things you can get into about the genealogies of how how the Nephilim corruption came in through humanity. It seems like through the line of Ham, something had happened in particular. Um, this book of Lamech, of, I mentioned earlier, says that um, Namar was the daughter of this Lamech. She's the one who married Noah. She was a Canaanite. Well, sorry. Well, she was a daughter of Cain, who had this corruption within her, mating with Noah. And out of the way the genetics works, her only son who had pale white skin was Ham. So he got the genetic marker, the curse of Cain, onto him. And it was his son, Canaan, who was cursed by Noah um, because of something that happened. We're not sure what exactly, but his nations were cursed. And it's through the nations of Canaan we get the Nephilim tribes appearing again. And then obviously, um, I think the tribes of Japheth mixed with them. And then it's... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. But that's basically antediluvian history summed up. That's where the Nephilim come from. And the ones that were wiped out and killed, um, even the, the the ones who were the Nephil, the lesser ones, and the humans even who corrupted their own DNA, their spirits, their souls, they, they're still here. Still here on Earth behind an illusory veil, we'll call it. Um, and they're demons. That's where they come from. You know? So... These are the things that that people are having experiences with. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, when you mentioned before, these sort of cryptids and these paranormal experiences where people are seeing, you know, uh, I would imagine that's where all of the lore comes from, whether it's a, a, a Bigfoot or a werewolf or something of that nature or, you know, even all the way down to what's happening today with this sort of alien disclosure and these, you know, tall grays and short grays and things of that nature. I am of the school of thought that they are somehow related to this really uh, ancient problem that human beings have had for quite a long time. What mm -hmm. you were saying before reminded me of uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Timothy Alberino, and um, I was listening to him talk, and he was talking about the, the natives of Peru, the people who still um, are, are close to the Inca culturally. You know, and they they dress in a traditional way and they they have all the traditional values in their culture. And they'll tell you stories that their megalithic structures were created by a race of evil giants and that their overarching head god sent a, a flood to kill them all. You know, these flood stories, they exist throughout so many cultures. Uh, so mm. do the concept of giants. I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on are you familiar with the Kandahar giant story? Yeah. What do you yeah. think is going on here? Do you think that that is an, a descendant of the Nephilim? Uh, I just find it so hard to imagine that, you know, this last straggler 
is existing in a cave system, I'd be much more inclined to believe that there is remnants of this bloodline and that they are dwelling within cave systems in remote areas like Kandahar in Afghanistan. Um, yeah, you know, but I don't think they were all fully wiped out during the, the whole, uh, I mean, it, it does explain that they didn't finish the job in the Bible and God wasn't happy with them. And then Israel lost everything because of it, you know, um, the job wasn't finished. Some some of these um, monsters did make it away. And I think once, you know, imagine being in the land of Canaan as a Nephilim during that time, and you're getting reports of this roving gang of tiny human beings who are slaughtering every giant in their path. You would say, well, I'm getting out of here then. <laughs> like, something weird's going on. We don't stand a chance, clearly. God must be on their side or something. Something's happening here. And I think a lot of them did flee all over the earth. Uh, the stories, for example, of um, uh, a good one I've come across is that a lot of people haven't heard of is in um, Inuit culture, way up north, as north as you can get, you know, in the cold lands. There's this myth they have of ice giants that when the ice is hard during winter, they come across from the north, even further north, and they mix themselves with the women and they rape the women. And what was created from this ice giants coming from the north? This could be symbolic of angels coming from the sky, by the way. You know, it could just be a metaphorical way of saying that. But what came of it were these half-human, half-ice giant monsters called the Tunits, basically Nephilim. Okay, so giants mixing with humans also creates lesser Nephilim, which are the Nephil or the Elio. Angels mixing with humans creates the Nephilim. Nephilim mixing with humans creates more Nephilim, just a slightly smaller. So these were like nine to eight foot tall Nephilim. Okay, still pretty tall by our standards. You'd look at that and go, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Even for us, that's pretty tall, you know. But they were huge as well. They were built, they were fast. They could lift up like dead carcasses of polar bears over the shoulders easily as described you know they could whip a seal over them no problem you know and the stories of them like literally causing some of them are so big they were causing huge tidal waves with literally with the phallus there's these stories like you know what i mean it's it's, it's crazy what these stories dropping it in the water yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah literally some of these are actually some of the myths you have of these tunic people and these giants and and the thing is though the inuits would would kind of go for them because they were encroaching on uh, territories for food and for hunting grounds. And it's the tunit were actually incredibly timid. They didn't stick around to fight. They always ran away or they were always running away whenever they encountered humans. And I think this is an, an echo of a situation from Canaan. I think they were remnants from this original culling of the Nephilim. And it seems like wherever human beings come in contact with these remnants of Nephilim, the Nephilim always die and it seems like the God-given edict to the original peoples to kill the people of the land of Canaan still remains, even though they hadn't finished the job. It's a case of wherever Nephilim meet humans, they will get slaughtered and die. God has ordained it, basically. And these tunits don't stick around. They run. They run when they meet humans because they know if we fight, we die. God has said it to be, to be this way now. You know what I mean? So, you know, the, the giants in the land of Canaan were wiped out enough for that to then be repopulated with normal humans, you know, and all these cities they'd built were taken over basically. So you want to talk about megalithic structures, you know what I mean? This is, this is these were the builders of these things. Um, now that's another tunic people. I just find it fascinating with them in particular that they flee from humans. This just backs up this idea that they have a good reason to fear humans because they have a death warrant out on them basically. 
you know, and they can't they can't fight with humans because they always keep losing because the God's on their side now. That God needs them gone. God wants to wipe them out, basically. So you get these, obviously, you're talking about Indian tribes in North America, known as the mound builders, and these mounds just everywhere filled with skeletons of giants that have all died, these burial grounds, you know. And you do get these odd stories of, of tribes contending with them. And it's this oral tradition the story's kind of passed down, you know. But we have articles from the 1800s of people who have talked to these tribes or tribe members who have told their stories. And there's this tribe called the Duwamish tribe, for example. And this is a, a member of the Duwamish tribe explaining the story to um, an interviewer in the 1800s for a newspaper. And this is what he said about this. This tribe says they used to have these uh, issues with this this group of um, hairy giants called the Nungnungs. And this Nung Nung tribe would constantly come and take their food and take their clothes that were out on the line and basically just be a nuisance to the tribe. And he says they could make themselves invisible by rubbing a weird gel all over their skin. And they had a really sick, weird, funny sense of humor. Like they were always joking around and playing practical jokes on the tribes around them. And they were just just generally like nasty people. They were always taking the women, kidnapping them. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes they would bring them back, sometimes they wouldn't, and it was this type of thing. Just toying with these tribes, these normal-sized little humans, you know, they were like a, a, a fun commodity to them type of thing. And then one day, it says the Duwamish leader stood up to them, says, we need to stop doing this. We're not, we're not going to take it anymore. And in response to this pathetic small human standing up to them, they flipped out, tore the heads off of all the men, just ripped them off, threw the women in the air above the trees and all the children. They were just slamming onto the ground after being thrown 30 foot in the air. They just went psycho on this tribe. And there was only like three or four survivors. The Duwamish tribe was just annihilated in that one moment. This is an oral story tradition that was passed down and it's, it's you know it's talked about you've got the Paiutes the famous Paiute story of Lovelock Cave in North America you have these white skinned red haired giants which were again a general nuisance to this tribe always warring with the Paiutes all the time over land and all sorts of things and they were always cannibalizing their people it's always described that these were red haired cannibals who were eating our women and our children okay so they went to war with them had a massive fight annihilated them trapped the remnants in a cave stuffed the entrance of the cave full of wood and all sorts of flammable stuff and set fire to it and smoked and burned and choked them out. And then years later, we have miners who are mining for, for bat feces. I think it's called guano or something like that. And it's very valuable. And they were mining for it in this cave. And under very thick layers of it, they finally uncovered all these artifacts and skeletons, which dictate that this story was true. These things were living in these caves. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They uncover it later, and it turns out that oral tradition was was a has some truth to it. That we found evidence that there are things, monsters with long skulls and red hair, still attached in this cave. You know, it's there they are, um, but it, it they just they don't they don't go to the cave anymore. That's how these tribes act. You know what I mean? It's a place of great evil. We don't go there. You know, but then obviously we turn up. You know, Europeans turn up and start mining stuff and doing and digging all these mounds up and desecrating these sacred burial grounds and finding giants everywhere. You know, it's yeah. And all the evidence right. is there that these Nephilim fled and settled in other places. You know, right? And then the Smithsonian comes in and they snatch up the bones and nobody ever sees them again. Absolutely. Uh, and you. Yeah. You touched on something there, the the pale skin and the red hair, and I think this is a good segue. It's it's the same thing that I heard about the Kandahar giant. 
Um, I can't necessarily speak to the pale skin, although that does seem to ring a bell, but I can definitively remember red hair uh, being a part of the descriptive of this giant in Kandahar in Afghanistan. And uh, and this is starting to paint a picture. You you said it before. Hold on to that memory of the white skin um, of the 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 curse of Cain and his bloodline. Uh, and so I think this is probably a good a good point to start rolling into this whole uh, connection. I, I mean, I'm excited for it, especially because you mentioned this 2016 kind of uh, string of clown uh, sightings, which I thought was really strange. I, I wasn't, a lot of people were freaked out about it. You know, it kind of created a little bit of panic, a little bit of fear. Uh, this idea that these killer clowns were everywhere, but I think predominantly it was maybe at its roots, there was a purpose for it, but then it was copycatted several times by just average people with, with, with clown costumes. Um, and then you see the occasional video of somebody stepping up to them and then it goes wrong for the person in the clown costume, but it was strange. And, and I don't know, uh, I'm sure you couldn't give the audience or me a definitive reason as to why that was happening. But do you lean at all towards that being some sort of a psychological operation, something that was hatched purposely? Yeah, because there are, are certain topics that we were fed, we're force fed. You know, um, right now we're dealing with the whole Maui fires and supposed lasers from the sky. And there's just this we're, we're constantly being bombarded as a people by what I call the most uh, uh, advanced propaganda machine that the world has ever known. And this, you know, these psychological operations, whether they're conducted by the CIA or some other alphabet organization or some darker entity with no name, it does to me seem like we are often being primed. And I don't know why the priming is happening. Uh, I mean, you could speculate as to why it is. But do you think that this clown thing was uh, a priming of, of the population? And if so, for, for what exactly? Okay, well, well, first of all, the clown, as well, I explain briefly now, is is a, is a symbol. The clown is an occult-created symbol. It represents the Nephilim. And if the mainstream media shows you something, and wants you to see it, then it's a message. It's a coded message for those who have the eyes to see and interpret the symbols. Okay, it wasn't for us. Okay, from our perspective, it's just something terrifying and creepy and weird that happened that the mainstream media picked up on for views. That's that's a simple exoteric understanding that the plebeians are supposed to take the profane masses the uninitiated you know um but to the initiated that was a sign and a symbol that the nephilim are returning basically wow that is uh i like that take when, when you when when you're talking about these these jesters and these clowns and i just wanted to touch on it before i uh, uh let you take it away is these entities that you commune with in the DMT realm, right, are often jesters. Yeah. Um, and that's a very specific and uh, a, a repeating theme that people entirely, you know, unrelated to each other whatsoever will have this experience often. There's there's a couple of things you'll potentially commune with, right? There's the machine elves, whatever that really means. I've never personally done uh, dimethyltryptamine myself, but... You know, I feel as though after enough Joe Rogan podcasts, yes, I have. Uh, so, you know, you'll you'll get this over and over again, this these jesters. Um, 
what role, if any, do these jesters play into this thing that you've discovered? Uh, they're just the disembodied spirits of Nephilim. Uh, they manifest oh, as they manifest as jesters because they had clownish features when they existed. It's more than likely the jester horns that you see are just horns manifested into the physical realm, into the sorry, into the DMT realm as something that looks like a jester's hat. Um, I, I've personally seen them myself. This is one of the many things that led me to make the connections. Um, I, I had a vision where I was looking up as a giant made of black and white fractal patterns with a skull that was shaped like many spiders' legs hanging over, kind of like a jester's hat. And, but he wasn't wearing a hat. He wasn't wearing clothes. His skull was literally shaped like that. And it had this big, wide purple grin with very thin lips, very lizard-like, a sharp, pointy nose, uh, big, glowing purple eyes, like an Egyptian-style patterned eyes with this black and white line pattern going all the way down, you know. Um, that was my first vision of these things. And this is before I knew my theory, by the way. This is one of the many things that made me make the connection when I finally had this 2016 sighting. It made me start to put it all together and go, DMT realm, giant jester clown monsters, clowns suddenly appearing everywhere, biblical history of the Nephilim. It all kind of just started clicking together, you know what I mean, in my brain and started firing off. But uh, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but it just, I'll lose this thought. So throughout history, right, these these fallen um, very much like extraterrestrials were, were whether or not people identify them as extraterrestrials within, you know, ancient mythology or belief systems. They have this habit of bringing us technology. So they bring us technique as in agriculture and things of that nature to build civilizations. There's always been these stories, right? Uh, even yeah. the 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 uh, crash of um, the the craft in Roswell through maybe uh, more flowery language could read as, you know, technology given to man by beings from the sky. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's, there's a lot of people who suggest that it wasn't, the crash was on purpose and that we were meant to, uh, to grab this technology, reverse engineer it, do whatever we're supposed to do. But I see this repeating theme throughout history of technology and these beings and every once in a while they'll give us something fun and when you do dmt or at least i've heard these entities will often commune to you these impossible concepts or these even some things that i've heard described as technology that you simply can't bring back from the experience and and maybe during the experience you have an understanding of it but that understanding quickly fades like a dream or something like that after you come out of it and, and am i onto something there because it feels very cool. It's a yeah. it's a really cool concept. Well, f first of all, you know, many people who take DMT aren't scientists, mathematicians, or physicists, or people who could interpret knowledge quite easily, mathematical code and things like that. So most people go there, they see something way beyond the comprehension. These beings tell them stuff they just don't understand. They come back from it like it was just a bad dream or a trippy dream, and they forget, you know. Um, and you have to remember, you know, this realm you're going to on DMT isn't a magical, wonderful, special place that's beyond our world. In fact, it's a lesser place than our world, the truth. It's a place where you can't be embodied. It's a place where physicality can't exist. And the entities who are trapped there, and they are trapped there, they want bodies. 
they want to be able to be in the physical world again, but they don't have a body anymore. They were killed. They were wiped out. They were disembodied. And now they're doomed to wander in this fractal psychedelic nightmare that never ends where they have no body or fingers or tastes to satisfy the urges they have. They can't, they hunger, but they can't eat. You know, they don't have taste buds, they don't have a mouth, they don't have a stomach, but they have urges still as a physical being that's conscious. You know, they want to eat, they want to have sex, they want to touch stuff, they want to smell things, but they can't. They're just this floating, weird amalgamation consciousness thing trapped in the gears of the universe, you know, kind of just weaving through the the cogs of the machine, unable to do anything useful. Um, they want bodies. And this is where the possession phenomena comes from. This is what demonic possession is truly all about. If they can possess you and you don't know, the more the better, because then you'll never be able to get rid of them or cast them out or know you have a problem to get rid of them. This is why Jesus came and this is why he cast demons out of people, because the, the modus operandi is to be in a body in which they can manipulate to do stuff so they can experience those fleshly pleasures vicariously through the person they're influencing to do these things. This is why people who get possessed by demons usually do horrible things and have disgusting lusts and perversions and tastes because these aren't theirs, although they probably haven't been made to believe they are. They're the whims and desires of the demons that possess them. And many demons can possess one individual. You know, they're not giants anymore. They have no size. They're they're ethereal. You know, the spirit beings in a sense. Um, so when people go to this DMT realm, you know, there is this impression I'm going to my own collective consciousness of of all of humanity or something, or I'm going to this seventh dimensional frequency way beyond our own. But it's not. It's just the other side of the coin. It's just the the pipe work and the wiring of our universe. It's just the it's the uh, the warp and the woof argument. You know, you have the rug, which is beautiful for this amazing complex pattern. But if you turn the rug over, you can see all the strings that connect in a mess everywhere to where that pattern was created. They're in the strings. They're in the mess. They're on the other side of the rug. But it's still the same creation. It's all one thing. So this naive belief people go there thinking they're learning something wonderful from a spiritually enlightened beings from another dimension, because that's what they tell them they are. There's light to them, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a myth. You're going to a lesser place, a place these beings do not want to be in. Not, it's not a place you want to be able to stay in for long either. You're lucky you get to come back after 10 minutes of taking a hit at DMT. They don't get to come back. <laughs> you know, they're, they're tripping forever and they are they hate it. You know, it's, it's described in the Bible as a dry place. You know, it's a horrible, dry place to be where they hunger and thirst but cannot quench any of it, you know. This- um yeah. Is this the, the reason why these cultures who um, have a long history of psychedelic use, specifically in the Amazon and things like that, in the jungles of South America, uh, practice so heavily human sacrifice? Because it would seem to me a pretty reasonable connection that the entities that they commune with while they're having these experiences that they build their entire belief system off of would want things like human sacrifice. Well, I think a lot of that is to do with energy and fear as well. These things are energetic vampires. They feed off fear. Um, because they, because the only thing, they, they don't eat food like us anymore, but they do source energy from vibrations and frequencies and, and energy, you know. And uh, it does feel like I've seen patterns where the more fear they can generate in an, in an individual, not even necessarily fear, sometimes it's laughter as well and happiness and joy, any form of energy they can generate in somebody they will then loose it off of them. They will drain them of that energy. 
And that's why you see a lot of demons like to mess with people, scare them, you know, and, and bring them into a state of extreme panic and fear, you know, and then just drain them of all the energy and the person is just useless for a while or passes out or something you know what i mean then they keep doing it over and over and over again because it's like they were a source of food for them the gnostics really rolled with this idea and made said that the earth is basically a giant energy farm for archonic beings you know and we're just batteries for them the matrix plays off this idea that humanity is used as a, a battery to run the artificial the world for the the entities you know and to run the matrix type of thing um no, this this idea that the world is a prison for us and we're nothing but uh, just energy for more powerful, sinister beings, it kind of has a truth to it. But it implies that God is cruel and keeps us trapped here and is evil. But that's not the case. It's that there are evil entities out there who are going against God's original plan for us, you know. And this world to them is kind of like we are their food. So you know, human sacrifices plays a large role in that, basically. Generate enough fear in, in, the, in the individual before you kill them, then you please the gods, you please the spirits, you please them because you've given them this gift prior, and then you get stuff in return for doing this. That's the point, you know. Um, human sacrifice is like the ultimate gift, isn't it, to these energetic, fear-loving monsters you know who probably love murdering people as well so they're probably possessing the person who plays the sacrificial role with the mask and the costume to murder the person and this is all we'll get into i got into this a lot but many of these cultures um even today you know who don't necessarily kill people but still have ancestor spirit worship we call it um and these folk traditions they they have their shamans some of them but some of them just have rituals in which they dress up in certain ways with the sole purpose to be possessed by the spirits. And they dress like the spirit to be taken over by the spirit. And once the spirit takes over, some cultures gather around the possessed and ask it questions and ask it for advice or ask it for blessings and things like that. Um, some cultures just roll with the possession and, and then eat things, live animals, do anything to please the being that's within them, you know. Um, some people believe they're literally being possessed by their literal ancestors, so grandma and granddad, but they're being lied to. That's the lie. That's the the salt. It's just a way for the demons to convince people to let them in. And there's this thing, this pattern emerges that all folk traditions do. You dress like the thing to be possessed by the thing. Okay, uh, Haitian voodoo culture is a prime example of this. They dress like this thing called Baron Semedi. Um, which is a top hat wearing, skull faced, suit wearing thing that has a cigar and loves to drink rum. Okay. Now, this is just a Nephilim entity that has this image, this Hatman image. Um, and when you dress like it, they, they say themselves, I'm possessed by him. And then I drink rum and smoke cigars because that's what they want. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what they want do to you, experience. Do you think that the. The the Hatman entity is uh, some sort of a Nephilim entity. It's hard to say that the, the um, it's it's a leader of of some kind. I don't know if there are many Hatmen. I don't think the Hatman is just one entity necessarily. I think there's a rank and order to the demonic realm, just like any military. This is a war at the end of the day, um, and there are obviously, like I said, there are. Classic, there are levels of Nephilim in the real world when they existed. There's the OGs, then there's the children of them, there's the grandchildren, there's the humans who try to be like them, you know, and they all have a hierarchical order of some kind within the military of the spirit realm. And this is this is a war, you know, they're described as legions in the Bible, you know, and a legion can possess a person, you know, and that's military language at the end of the day, you know, because that's they're trying to 
make it clear, you know, you're in a spiritual battle. This is this is war, you know. I think Ephesians 6, 12, you know, it says um, you, you don't wrestle with flesh and blood. You wrestle with uh, principalities, with powers, with spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, wear the full armor of God and protect yourself from these things because your only defense is not physical, it's spiritual. You need to be, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, these things will take its place. It's simple as that, you know, and that's 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 the war, that's the battle, you know. Um, we can cast them out, sure, but if you don't fill that space with the Holy Spirit, then they'll come back tenfold. More will come back into you. Um, their aim is to, is to have a body, and they'll take yours if you let them type of thing. Um, but the hat man, he is, he is some kind of serious player. That's all I've gathered so far. Now, in terms of hat man symbolism, um, we see it in the real world. We see it in secret societies who also venerate the clown. Um, uh, so shriners specifically are a good example of that. They have their own clown sex within each shrine, as they call them, and they have their own shriner clowns. Um, and they go off and, you know, and they do it for the kids. They they go to they build hospitals for dying children, you know, and they go and entertain the dying children by dressing like clowns. They put on charity events for the sick children dressed like clowns. Now, it seems like fun and innocence again to us, the unwashed, profane, ignorant masses who know nothing about symbolism. But what these people are doing, you know, secret societies like this worship demons. They work with demons. They're in allegiance with Lucifer himself, you know. And just as the demons are like the foot soldiers of the fallen angels, the low-level grunt privates of the military, you know, um, the Freemasons, the Shriners, these secret societies are the physical foot soldiers for the same agenda, for the same army. They're just in the physical realm doing the same will of the father of the Nephilim, you know, the fallen angels. They're all on the same side. But what they do is they dress like Nephilim to be possessed by the Nephilim. So they dress like the clown, which brings the Nephilim, gives the Nephilim like a key or a gateway, let's say, into the physical that's, that's the power behind these things. That's the true power, you know, that all these folk traditions I explained earlier that do this understand very clearly. And I've broken it down on my channel, but you'll find that all of these folk traditions all around the world who dress like this when being possessed by spirits, they have clown features embedded into their ritualistic garb and clothing. The face paint, the white face, the red nose, the psychedelic fractal patterns all over the skin, the feathers everywhere. They're usually red hair in some way or some, some kind of psychedelic red pattern within the hair and colors everywhere. And this is because the Nephilim were a serpentine hybrid with a human, a human who had extremely white skin, let's say. So the base of a clown is white skin. That's the base clown. They white up the skin as much as they possibly can. That's the mark of Cain. That is the, the, the base trait of a Nephilim creature, you know, to have porcelain white, vampiric white skin. And then obviously clown has the red hair. Well, the red hair motif seems to be just the most common description of every giant story you've ever heard everywhere. You know, it, they always have red hair. It seems to just be some kind of genetic trait, but it's not like ginger red. It's not like slightly orange, like my beard. We're talking my 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 baby's toothbrush, you know, red, <laughs> like it was red, unheard of, you know, and not human red. It's something else. It's a divine red, a blood, brilliant, shining red hair, you know, fiery type stuff. 
with porcelain and white skin, you know. So that's your base of a clown, red wig, white skin, and that's the base of a Nephilim, you know. Now the patterns, the rest of it comes in from the serpentine nature of their parents. So, you know, when you look at the face of a viper, which is what the in the book of Amran, um, Belial, Lucifer, the seraphim angel is described as, have the face of a viper. Vipers have very flat faces and very wide mouths. Now, from the front, that looks like angular, sharp features, eyes that are like very, very large, very angular and sharp, high cheekbones, very angular, sharp, high cheekbones, and a huge, wide grin. From the side, you know, it looks like a normal snake's mouth, a big, wide line. But from the front, it looks like a huge smile. Clowns, jokers, jesters are often exaggerate the size of the mouth. That's what they do. You know, that's the whole point of it. And they give themselves extremely high brow ridges in the face paint to emphasize that the eyes are much larger. Not only that, they color it in blue usually all the way down to the eyelids. So when they close their eyes, it looks like they have enormous blue glowing eyes. That's another common descriptor of the Nephilim. They had glowing golden or blue eyes. They're described as the glowing ones in many extra texts all around the world for this reason. They had divine nature to them. They had a they were half angel. They glowed. You know, they had an aura. They, they were divine. You know, they were human and divine. Now, serpents are psychedelic. All reptiles have patterns all over their skin. They're not just plain. Not only do they have scales, first of all, which imagine a human skin mixed with some kind of scale hybrid. That's a weird thing to imagine alone. I think they shone and reflected like a serpent skin would the light quite easily by nature of that with this base whiteness to it and then psychedelic splotches and patterns like a serpent patterned skin would have all over them. They had marks of like random patterns here and there all over their bodies. But they also, the, the angels have wings Okay, the seraphim angels specifically, they do have wings. They're all described as feathered serpents. Quetzalcoatl, a, a famous god to the Mayans in the Aztec culture, feathered serpents were the gods that came from heaven. Um, dragons are what we call them in Europe. You know, winged serpents of some kind. Um, go to China, full of them. Dragon mythology everywhere. We're obsessed with, with, with dragons, you know. You'll find that this story of winged serpentine monsters coming from the sky is is the norm all across the earth many cultures have the exact same story and um imagine a feathery covered serpent thing mixing with the human again so these things probably had psychedelic colored feathers sticking out of them as well as this white skin this wild crazy red hair colors all over the place like a rainbow by nature of the psychedelic patterns and palettes of nature itself you know um, yeah, these things were trippy, colourful monsters with huge, big, wide serpentine mouths that opened incredibly wide, terrifying to the sight. You know, humans have a lot of teeth, but then snakes have just two fangs. So imagine a mix of that, these many long tooth teeth things everywhere, like a human serpent mix. It was they were just utterly terrifying clown, jester like looking, feathery, wild, colourful monsters, you know, and that's. You dress like a clown, you're mimicking that. So the multicolored patterns of a clown, the clothes they wear, the harlequin patterns, that serpent skin, that serpent patterns. You're trying to make yourself look like you're wearing psychedelic colors, like uh, the repeat patterns of a serpentine nature of some kind. The face paint of the original clowns was very block psychedelic patterns. 
you'll find the line going through the eye on a lot of clouds sometimes. Well, reptilians have a serpent slip for the eyes rather than a, a round pupil as well. Um, you'll you'll find often they wear a frill around the neck, a big white frill thing. Um, that is not to represent the pompous circumstance of Victorian era fashion in some kind of jesting way. It's a reptilian neck frill, which lizards do have in Australia. It's quite a normal trait for a lot of them. They probably had a similar thing, you know. And even in a movie which came out in 2014, which was called Clown, is about a man who finds a costume of a clown in the attic, and he needs to find a quick costume for his daughter's birthday party. He puts on the costume, and then he realises, I can't take it off. No matter what he does, he refuses to come off. In fact, it turns out he's, he's put on the skin of a demon, called a cloin and this demon has now possessed him and will basically not let him go until he eats five children and that cloin has the neck frill of a lizard with spines of bones going through it like a reptile would so it's telling you in that film clearly what it was the frill is not a representation of a victorian or georgian fashion it's the representation of a reptilian neck frill, a, a very famous reptile we see in media. Well, it was the Jurassic Park dinosaur that spit venom at the guy. It had the plume that opened yeah. up. They also had this by nature of their reptilian parents, you know. Um, clowns are always seen wearing stilts, symbolic of the giant stature. They're always seen wearing large, giant, silly-sized shoes, representative of the giant stature in real life. They're always seen wearing giant gloves or a tiny umbrella to emphasize that they are giant beings. It's all symbolic. It's symbolism. So, you know, you dress like the thing to bring the thing into you. This is all... No. The, the clown was designed to be a perfect symbolic representation of the Nephilim themselves, but tweaked in a caricatured way just enough that the general public would consider them as something stupid or silly and wouldn't consider it as anything important in the West. But the features that were picked up to design the clown were clearly picked and cherry-picked from all these folk cultures all around the world who all exhibit one, two, or three or more of these features in their own ancestor spirits' um, ritualistic garb. And to them, the ancestor spirits aren't grandma and granddad. It's the builders of their civilization the Nephilim. The creators of their culture are their ancestors, the mound builders, the Nephilim, you know. That's who they're trying to summon and they know what they're doing but in the West, we don't. It's been hidden from us. It's been occulted by the secret societies who work with the demons so they can openly dress like clowns, venerate their gods, their demon demonic gods, bring them into our realm, manifest through the clown and we wouldn't know. We're ignorant. We don't have. We don't know that's what's happening, you know. And you, you, I can. I'll let you speak, but I'll go into a minute where we get a clown from in the West. Where it truly comes from. How we how we amalgamated it into our culture. We'll go into that in a minute. But if you want to speak, I'll let you speak for a, for a minute. Well, I really only wanted to to make this one point. Um, you know, as you're talking, I can't help but think about uh, Stephen King and whether or not he's initiated or something like that. Because if you look at the movie, it. Not only was it uh, a clown, but it was also uh, a shape-shifting clown. It also had this ability to open up its jaws to freakish extents. It had many rows of teeth, uh, and it was eating children. And there's even a scene where it's depicted as um, sort of this light being 
So in other words, the clown wasn't its only form. It was able to shapeshift into, I remember in the first movie, it shapeshifted into a, uh, a werewolf, right? So there goes your sort of animal-human hybrid. Uh, and within the Stephen King universe, it's alluded to, because it's my understanding all of his movies connect. So whether it's The Stand or it's It or something like that, they're all part of the same universe. And in another movie, it alludes to it being of some sort of extraterrestrial origin, which I think there's this big push to get us to believe that a lot of these entities are simply off-planet beings, you know, uh, highly advanced civilizations with highly advanced technology. And so, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if they're sort of masking the origins there. But it is very much, not only is it a clown, but like I said, it eats children. It opens, it unhinges its jaw. It's got many rows of teeth. It's depicted as a light being. It can shape shift. What, what's, what's Stephen King's problem? Well, not only that, but it also uses the fear of its victims to get more power in order to manifest more physically into the world. As yes, I mentioned yes. earlier, and it, they, they are vampires that feed off energy to get more power and strength into themselves. So it's all there. Yeah, Stephen King knows what the symbol means. He's just used it in a commercial way to make bank off it, basically, and make money. And we, the unwashed masses, haven't got a clue what it really means. And we just think it makes a good story. And we pay for it, you know. It's uh, it's it's that's what these occultists do they take their allegories their stories and their symbols they make a mainstream movie or book out of it and cash in and they're laughing at us they're laughing at us we don't know and to us it's like that's so unique that's so inspired these guys are geniuses how do they come up with these things oh wow what an amazing artist it's like no they've come up with nothing new (laughs) they're ripping off ancient symbols that that people who are in the know and have been trained all know about you know and they're you know, it's, right. it's to us it's something magical and wonderful and impressive well, what's the expression there's nothing new under the sun nothing new under the sun no exactly you know so let's talk about where the clown comes from in terms of just actual historical the clown itself in the west because like i said the clown is an right. amalgamation of a lot of things it took a long time to actually get to us to where we have a clown that we call today in the modern age the typical stereotype of an image of a clown uh, now the, there have always been people throughout history who make other people laugh okay so there's always this argument that the first clowns were in egypt thousands of years ago it's like no there were people who were comedians it's not the same as a clown, as what I would call today. They weren't going around wearing red wigs, painting the face white, honk honking away with horns and on unicycles. That didn't exist then in Egypt. You know, they had they had their own, you know, a, a, a funny man of some kind or a buffoon, let's call it. Uh, Greek theatre itself and Roman theatre always had buffoons and silly people and jesters, let's call them. People who would be the butt of the joke, who would hurt themselves, fall over, tip and make people laugh by just being an absolute idiot type of thing. They've always existed. That's not what this is about. And a lot of people always go through all this, the archetype of a clown and get really metaphysical about it. And I'm actually being extremely literal. Like, <laughs> Try and leave metaphysics at the door with this theory. This is really on point. That it's, it's very real. Like it's it's a symbol created with the sole intention to bring demons into this world. That's exactly what a modern clown is. And you can go into the archetype of making people laugh and what that means to be a clown in the psyche of humanity. And it's you're getting too out there with that kind of myth, mythologizing about what I'm talking about. So let's bring it back down to worth. So buffoonery and being um, a joker has kind of always been a thing. Okay, 
Now, throughout Roman theatre and through Greek theatre, there was this thing called, uh, let's say, um, the parasite. And this would be a person who would always try and get food off people. Okay, and this was like the the, the proto-clown within Greek theatre um, after Aristophanes. I've got a book about it here, actually. Yeah, I'm just re I'm actually reading about this right now about the clown's role in Greek and <laughs> uh, Greek literature after Aristophanes. And yeah, and there's a character in here that's um, based off older characters. A lot of it's in Latin, so I have to keep like <laughs> uh, transcribing it and trying to find out what they're talking about. But um, it's basically about 1,000 to 1,500 years ago. This this parasite character, which is kind of like a proto clown in Greek culture, as we would call it today. Um, but he was always after just food. He always wanted to get invited to high society parties just to eat everything, basically. Um, that's kind of where these stock characters were starting to be built. So we had um, the clown servant character, who was the servant of a rich person, was often depicted as like a buffoon-type character of some kind. Um, there was Pantaloon as well. There was um, the Harlequin character was always like a, a antagonist devil-like figure who did like somersaults and rolls to imply his amazing um, otherworldly ability, you know. Um, and these were like, they didn't dress as we understand clowns too. They dressed in like servant garbs, baggy clothing type of thing with big pom-poms here and there, you know. Um, Over-exaggerated poor man clothing is kind of what these clown buffoon characters wore. So after the collapse of Rome, you'd find throughout Italy and all throughout Europe were these troops of ex-performers for the Roman circus, basically. And it kind of became a family business, and it was passed down to generations. And long after the collapse of Rome, you know, this culture and tradition had kind of been created of traveling performers that became what was known as the Comédie de l'Art movement in Italy and in France. Now, through the Comédie de l'Art movement, these stock characters had kind of been established through all these older practices throughout Greek and Roman theatre. And these stock characters were the, the, the rich industrialist who owned businesses, his servant, uh, the outsider buffoon who was trying to get the daughter of the rich person who was uh, Columbine, okay? And then they had other people in between who were just like other comedic characters. And in a way, they were all kind of clowns. They all brought a comedic element to the whole thing. And that's what they did. They went around with these stock characters and they basically put on performances in villages and people threw money at them. And that's how they made their living, you know. Um, so this this thing happened where they had this character called the Harley Quinn. It's pronounced uh, Harley, Harlequin or Helikins prior to that. But Arlecchino, A-R-L-L-I-C-I-O-N, Arlecchino. It was the Italian version of Harley Quinn, basically. Now, Arlecchino, as the proto-Harlequin, wore baggy clothing, which was white. He wore a black mask with a lump on the head. And he also had a cane of some kind, a club. And he had multicolored patches just all over his, his body. It's kind of sewn loosely in there. And this is the Arlequin. Now, the, the history of this character actually comes from the Wild Man of Europe. This is what he based the Harlequin character on, this character called the Wild Man of Europe. The Wild Man of Europe is an incredibly tall, giant, hairy man who carried a club, okay, who is basically a Nephilim, a Nephilim proto, uh, 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 probably more of an Elio or a Nephil, not the original Nephilim, the remnants that were scattered everywhere. Think Bigfoot. That's a good example. 
big hairy man, 10 foot tall, not towering like a tree, but still bigger than the average human, big bulky, carried a club on his back. And this was supposed to be like a mythical creature that was all throughout Europe at this time. There's plenty of wild men stories of incursions of people fighting with the wild men. There's a famous tapestry. Um, I think it's a Swiss tapestry, which shows the wild men fighting the Moors and literally tall, hairy, pale skinned, white haired monsters fighting tiny Sorry, humans. What, what would that what would that have been called again? The the offspring of the Nephilim. There was two interchangeable names. Uh, the Nephil. So these are the first offspring, which are the N-E-P-H-I-L. And then after them were the Eliud. So they are pronounced. Um, there's two ways to spell this. You can go do E-L-J-O, the Elijo, Elio. And then the spelling is E-L-I-O-U-D. The Eliud, and they were they were likely where we get these wild men from. These are the remnants that still plagued Europe, were scattered throughout the lands. May even still be here today by many names all across the land, you know. But basically, tall, hairy creatures, um, human-like in visage, ape-ish, but but human, you know, and um, monsters, tall monsters with clubs, basically. Um, and this is this was known as helikins, and helikins was described as roving throughout. France and Germany um, with his gang of demon hordes and he would row from city to city causing chaos and he would be the leader, this Helikins this big tall hairy man with a club and he'd have loads of little mutant men that would follow him. These are the hybrid humans. Again, it's a, it's a Nephilim with his hybrid creatures that he created which were humans that have been genetically engineered. Now this is actually identical to the story of Dionysus in Greek mythology. Dionysus would have a band of merry fauns and maenads and sirens who would follow him around, get drunk with him and party, and they'd have this horde of people. He'd go from village to village, taking his tyrannical party merrymaking everywhere he went, you know, and people would join his ranks, you know, and go off with him and give in to their basic urges and drink wine and, and take drugs and have sex and all sorts, you know. And it was said symbolically I'm starting to think actually more literal that those who would follow Dionysus would become fawns, half human, half beast. They would become half goat, half men. They would transform into Nephilim beasts, faux Nephilim. That's the Dionysus story from Greek. And it has these parallels to the Helikins character of German mythology, a, a Nephilim, a tall creature with a band of humans that would go from village to village causing chaos but would also these humans would be transformed into like human animal hybrids it's the same story from this greek mythology of dionysus which is very interesting because dionysus is the patron saint of theater and performance and art you know so you find that these links are heavily embedded into this creation of this harlequin character arlecchino the wild man and, you know, he plays in the in the plays, these original comedic art movements, which Helikins is based on this wild man called Helikins. He would play the devil, basically, the, the brute, the beast. You know, he would have magical powers. He could change the scene by whacking his stick on the floor, the slapstick, and it would suddenly magically change to something else. He would be a commentator breaking the third wall. He would be outside of the... Uh, the, the play itself, but within it at the same time. He was a mythical, magical creature within the play. But he was kind of like a mannish monster who wore this monster demon mask with a horn. And the little horn is supposed to represent Cain, I believe, because people said the mark of Cain during that time was a lump on the head. You know, they had their own interpretations of it. 
So Helikins is literally a Nephilim creature based on the wild man of Europe, which are the remnants of Nephilim roaming through Europe. That's who they base this character off of. But they, you know, they they made it more of a, a comedy character for this this play through the comedy de l'art movement. And the Harlequin would always have a foil, which was the clown. Okay, so the clown at this point was just a servant, just a a bumbling, foolish uh, type of servant, and Harlequin was the the quick witted, devilish figure you know, of some kind. And the clown had very little to do with, with the Nephilim in any sense. He wasn't created for that. It was just a, a reiteration of the buffoon character of the past through the Roman and Greek um, theatre. But as time went on, the characters made a switch. The development started to change as, as history went on, as hundreds of years went on. So this was uh, at the back of the medieval period, the 1600s, going through the 1700s to the 1800s, we get into the Enlightenment period. Um, art was having a huge flourish, you know, and these shows were being put on everywhere. And and the UK, uh, Britain, picked up on the Harlequin character and these these Harlequinards, as they were known then, and became pantomime in the UK. And you find that the Harlequin character had kind of molded over these hundreds of years to not be the quick-witted demonic uh, jester that he had always been. But he became more of a doting fool who was always fawning over the daughter of the rich industrialist, Columbine. And he was kind of, he became more of a silly, weaker version of himself. He was no longer the quick-witted thing. And the clown took that role. He became what Harlequin was, this quick-witted, devilish, demonic figure. And you find throughout the, um, let's say, the build-up to the 1800s, so, you know, the, the late 1700s, Britain was doing a lot of these shows now. These were, were They were making these, these stock characters. People were writing scripts for them to play out in these pantomimes. So it was always the same characters, but a different scenario. So it was Harlequin in this scenario, Harlequin in this scenario. Harlequin was always the lead. That changed with the pantomimes, and the clown became the lead eventually. And it, that, that switch happened in this pantomime era, um, this great era from Drury Lane in London and these theatres and these shows at the time. And there was a character, a performer, who was called Joseph Grimaldi, who was a huge player of pantomimes and shows during this time in this place, specifically in London, in Drury Lane, at these theatres, the Sadler Wells Theatre, and uh, another one as well. He was always back and forth between these two theatres. He was an in-demand actor, you know. He was a big character. He was a brilliant acrobat. He could just do things other people couldn't do. And he basically made the clown so popular that he's the one who basically like, right, we're going to make the clown the lead from now on. People want the clown. They don't want Harlequin anymore. They want the clown, you know. So this this switch happened where basically the clown was more like the original Harlequin than the Harlequin was originally. So... The Harlequin basically became the clown, started to dress like a clown instead. That's all that happened. The clown played the same character as Harlequin and and just had this clothing, this, this weird opposite dress. And something happened during this time in the 1800s. There was a Freemason called Charles Dibdin, who was the owner of these theatres at the time, who had hired, obviously, Joseph Grimaldi to play the clown in these Harlequinards. And he basically made a costume change in the 18, bang on 1800. And he utterly changed the costume of the Harlequin and the clown to be exactly what we know of today. 
so the modern clown image this multicolored psychedelic fractal pattern white skin weird looking puffy clothing thing was all designed by a freemason called charles dibden he was a member of the leicester suit lodge basically <laughs> right and he Grimaldi dressed this way. And Joseph Grimaldi wanted to reimagine the clown himself and make it his own. He wanted he was competing against older clowns who kind of believed themselves to be the best. He wanted to redesign it and make it his. And he invented the clown makeup, as we know, the white thing with the rosy cheeks and the red nose type of look with the psychedelic diamond patterns on the face and the garish look, basically looking like a, a fat, bloated child, <laughs> this middle-aged man, basically, who could do somersaults. And he wanted it to be as ugly and crazy and, and horrible as possible. And he based it off this thing called a sanguinous nature. Now, during this time of science, people believed in something called the four humours. And it's, the, it's about bloodletting and an imbalance of certain fluids in the blood. And someone who's said to have too much blood is to be a, a, a clown-like, they end up acting like a clown. They end up being very naive and foolish and silly and have an upbeat, optimistic, almost naive nature. That's what they believed people who had too much blood had. But the consequence of having too much blood was you have bright red cheeks and a bright red nose and blotches all over your skin, which is a lot where the clown makeup he did was based on. You know, the optimistic, over-the-top, silly, foolish person who has too much of a sanguineous nature, of a bloody nature, a ruddy nature. So a lot of that face paint came from that imagery as well. Um, and then, so he he had relatively innocent things for why he painted himself to look like that. But the person who did the costume change, the Freemason, probably knew full well what he was doing when he made the costume to be like a serpent over the top with the frills and the multicolored fractal patterns. You know, originally, the clown just dressed in a boring, baggy servant robe, gray boring bland nothing to it you know and harlequin had a costume change at this time he became this psychedelic jest diamond pattern sequin patterned thing we call a jester today so this freemason created a jester and a clown on, in one day on one show in in the 1800s and from then on you know joseph grimaldi the guy who played the clown became the father of all clowns he designed all of it was attributed to him you see very little mention of Charles Dibdin in the mainstream sources. Everything, oh yeah, Joseph Grimaldi created the clown. It's all down to him. He's the person who made the modern image, but it's not. It was a Freemason called Charles Dibdin. He's the one who designed the costumes. He's the one who changed an age-old tradition for hundreds of years out of the European comedic art movements to be this thing in a, in a pantomime. And then all clowns are kind of based off this image from then on. And for the past 200 years, we've seen a development and adoption of the clown through the American circuses to be what it really is today. And it's been molded and sculpted and changed and tweaked to be the perfect representation of a Nephilim being. And I believe it was done on, on purpose. They've adopted it because they saw this looks like our gods and people don't know it. So they've kind of slowly tweaked it throughout the, the age, you know. And then the circuses of America began to become popular then throughout the 1800s, pre-depression -dep era. A lot of money was going about. A lot of Freemasons during that time were building Solomon-esque temples everywhere and uh, the circus was the main form of entertainment the Freemasons have always owned the entertainment industry even from the very beginning and it was Freemasons like P.T. Barnum and the Ringling Bros who popularised the American circus, they were the key players every last one of them a Freemason um, and they put on a huge show called uh, Harlequin Freemason well actually Charles Dibdin wrote the show Harlequin Freemason for his own um, 
lodge at one point. But they, sorry, in America, these Freemasons, so maybe 50 years, 60 years after the invention of the clown, the popularization of the circus, they created this show called uh, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And King Solomon was infamous for summoning demons and controlling demons and building his temple with the help of demons through the use of a magic ring given to him by God. He was the ringmaster. He was the lord of the rings. Okay, He was the the one who, uh, the hat man in the center of the ring who orchestrated the demons, basically, you know. And this is what a circus truly was. That entire production was was. All the costumes were made by Freemason affiliate associations who made all the costumes for the lodges who put on their own ceremonies. Um, the clown was adopted into it, which is a perfect representation of a demon. And we're talking about a show here which involves demon summoning and worship, you know, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Um, it was all orchestrated by Freemasons from start to finish. And what they managed to do, and it's even described in this book I've got, um, which I've quoted in my book, they managed to basically do a huge Freemasonic ritual, which would normally be performed on a small scale in the lodges on a huge scale to the public without them realizing it. Now, and, the, and the initiated would go to these circus shows and watch their rituals being played out on a grand scale in a way they never imagined it could be because they only ever do these small versions in their lodges privately. But here it is on, in public being performed on a mass scale with acrobats and animals and clowns everywhere, you know, <laughs> performing our rituals for us, which would normally be in the lodge. So the, the hat man, the orchestrator, the central ring master of the ring is not only a Solomon analog as being the master of the ring, the orchestrator of the demons, which is the clowns, uh, but it's also a parallel to the, the grand worshipful master of a lodge. Now, within lodges, the, the, the main guy who runs the lodge is the only one who's allowed to wear a top hat symbolically speaking, and everyone else has to wear a white hat. They can't wear the black top hat if they're going to wear a hat at all. Only he is allowed to. And obviously the ringmaster dresses like a Freemason with the long black robes and the, the, the tails at the back of the coat and the top hats. So it's basically, uh, the, if you want to go off what it is, you know, the circus performance, especially on the original performances, was just the same as the ritual that was done in these lodges. And the leader of it was the grandmaster who wore the hat the ring of the master who wears the hat in the center. It was just all allegorical for the Freemasons' rituals. But now they've finally created the perfect symbol for their gods, the clown. And it's been adopted ever since. It's been used ever since, and it's still used today. And when the symbol of a clown appears in the news, let's say, <laughs> it's being used on purpose. It has its meanings. It's established. You know. And that's where it comes from. It's interesting, too, because now we've turned this corner where clowns are almost exclusively horrifying they're used yeah. in you know in horror movies it's become an icon that is uh directly related to fear you know and and i never really understood that in any other context outside of obviously the movie it which i think helped to spur a lot of that on um especially the original one from the 90s but in in this context, it makes uh, a disturbing amount of sense. Yeah, well, it's the externalization of the hierarchy thing. I think it's them subtly telling us the clown is demonic. They're literally telling you now the clowns are demonic. They are literally demons. That's literally what they represent. And we're showing you, and you still don't know or understand. But it's kind of that whole, well, our, our hands are clean. We told you. 
you know, it's that kind of attitude. Yeah, um, revelation of the method, sort of yeah. karmically free. It's that kind of but the thing is people love the scary clown. You get these cult people in the culture, they mimic it and idolize it and venerate the demon themselves and dress like clowns. You'll find in um fashion today, just at the start of this year, they release their new um style and it turns out clown fashion is in, clown core is in. And we even had uh, popular celebrities dressing in clownish aesthetics. Um, Harry Styles is a good example who was seen walking around wearing a Harlequin patterned clothing and clown core is in now. And they had these shows where people were walking down catwalks wearing the original Harley Quinn designs, the original clown designs and clown patterns and things like that. And what you see going through the catwalk, um, although it's an extreme version, you'll find similar styles starting to come down into the public, into the outlets eventually. You know, it's downwind, isn't it? The, uh, the fashion of the outlets are downwind from the fashion of the catwalks type of thing. Um, and like I said, if if dressing like a clown evokes the demons and getting if you can get the public to dress like as clownish as possible, then you are opening portals and people aren't even realizing it. You know, it's it's a it's an agenda in a sense. And uh, if you want to talk about people who look like clowns. You know, you'll find, let's say, those who like to uh, throw around a rainbow flag and um, it's that particular culture that I'm probably not allowed to say anything else about before we get flagged or taken down. Um, but, you know, they're the most clownish looking people I've ever seen in my entire life. They, you know, they dye their hair incredibly psychedelic colors. They cover themselves in tattoos and patterns. They wear the most crazy colored sequin clothing you can imagine. They cake themselves in makeup that make them look alien and insane like a clown, you know, and what's the spirit behind all these people, you know, truly. And when you think about what they represent, pride, you know, which is exactly what the fallen angels represent and what they go for, you know, what they want humanity to fall into, to blaspheme God, then it's all it's all connected into one image. And the image is the psychedelic fractal colours. Um, it seems innocent, you know, it's just colourful, it's just fun, it's just a bit of fun, but there's, there's, clowns are no laughing matter, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those type of things. Um, as we as we get towards the end here, because uh, we are at the two hour mark, I, I do want to ask you about something you said earlier. And um, so, in regards to this 2016 sudden appearance of clowns everywhere, you couldn't escape it for. I think it was probably about a month or two where it was going real hard, and then it kind of faded away. Uh, actually, it didn't fade away. I feel like it stopped abruptly. But either way. You said that, in your opinion, it's sort of a signaling to the initiated that the Nephilim are returning. And we have this idea that in the in the end days, it will be as the days of Noah. Yeah. And do you is there any part of you that does think that we're good? Because I'll tell you where I stand. Uh, I, I believe that there's sort of this thinning of the veil happening and that sightings of all kind are picking up uh, pretty substantially. And you could say, well, that's anecdotal. That's because everyone's armed with a cell phone, uh, you know, and so, and and then with it becoming maybe a cultural contagion, more and more people are looking for these things. More and more people are faking videos. Sure, th those sorts of things can happen. But based off of the things that I've seen and researched, I feel as though we're ramping up. Is there any part of you that feels like we may actually, and I'm not asking you to make predictions, right? We're, I'm not saying, hey, Paul, do you think we're in the end times? Are they definitively coming? You know, I'm, I'm not asking that at all. But 
Well, if somebody forced you uh, and you had a 50 50 decision, are we going to see this this ramping up? Are we going to see the return of the Nephilim within our lifetime? If you had to had to guess. I'm not a, I'm not a prophet, you know, I don't want to put myself in that kind of situation. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, you look into genetic engineering um, where they tell us the science is, it's actually in its rudimentary forms, realistically. I think they've um, unethically edited genes before. Um, and I think the person who did that got put in jail in, in China, but he's out currently now and he's trying to try to do it again. Um, and that was in 2018, I think. Um, and I know we've started messing with animal human hybrids but even then they say they're just in the embryonic forms and they haven't actually progressed them further and all this type of stuff so we don't we don't really know if they can start hybridizing humans fully yet um i do agree with what you're saying that there is this thinning of the veil i do think more supernatural things are starting to manifest more physical than ever um something's happening you can feel it in the air it's one of those things isn't it you know and something bizarre is happening and i think obviously with this whole 2016 period to to now has been considered clown world that's kind of a meme that's in the consciousness of most humanity most of humanity even the mainstream normies who aren't conspiracy theories they they call it a clown world now it's in the consciousness it's in the forefront of the mind everything's an irreverent joke nothing's serious anymore the joker has been released re-released recently hasn't it and the sequel's coming out soon everything everyone's got this feeling that reality is a joke now nothing serious we can't take anything serious anymore and it's i think it, it is all metaphorically spiritually symbolically all pointing to this idea that the, the nephilim in a sense are returning whether that's in a spiritual nature or a literal physical sense i couldn't say and there's obviously with the rise of ai there's this fear that they were going to um you know, the, the demons are manifesting through the artificial intelligence and it's actually demons you're talking to. Now, I don't I don't necessarily know if that's the case. And maybe it is. But I do think what we're seeing there are the the initial beginnings of um, the development towards creating a perfect vessel for the demons to inhabit that isn't a flesh body like ours. Because possession, as great as it is for a demon in the short term, it's not optimal. We can cast them out in the name of Jesus Christ. That's not useful for a demon. Um, we're not perfect vessels for them because I'm in it. I'm in my vessel, you know, and it's, 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 they don't want to share it with somebody and they don't want that person they're sharing it with to be able to just kick them out at a moment's notice without giving them, you know, time to pack. Basically, it's kind of it's not an optimal possession is messy. And it requires a lot of work for them to be able to convince people to let them in and all sorts of things. You've got to convince them to start dressing like a clown. You've got to convince them to, you know, wear the right clothing and do the right rituals. It's just it's an it's annoying for a demon to, you know. Right. So, what, well, do you know whole, where do you know where it gets a lot easier? If CERN would just hurry up and punch a hole through the fabric of space and create a <laughs> portal into the dimension that these things are locked in. True, true. But even if they did that. They're still disembodied. How are they going to manifest here? How are they going to interact with our world without a body to interact with it? So this is the issue. Oh, they, need, they need bodies. And like I said, they can try and possess us, but Jesus is just keeps getting in the way, you know? <laughs> so what they Have need you... is a, vest, a vessel that can't be, they can't be cast out of. So I, I do think with the rise of transhumanism, the rise of AI, I think we're seeing the brain being built with AI, the artificial brain, the neurons, uh, the ability for a machine to think similar to a human or even better is being built through artificial intelligence. And I think through 
robotics and transhumanist agendas, the body is being built that will be better and better than human. You put the two together, you've got a vessel with a working brain that has no soul, which can be embodied by a spirit, which just happens to want a body. Once it inhabits that body, it can interact with our world. It doesn't have to compete with another soul inhabiting the body, which is us, the humans. And it thinks faster. It's faster, stronger, invincible, has everything better than us. And once again, like the giants used to be on the earth, suppressing all the humans, subjecting them, making them worship them, the robot gods are going to start suppressing humans, dominating us, you know, being kings among gods, among men once more. And it's the same spirits. It's the Nephilim have returned, basically, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. And that's when Jesus will eventually return and put an end to all of it, you know, and that's, but it's not, it's going to be a short period of absolute agony in hell, basically. <laughs> no, yeah. it's ridiculous because so much of our favorite lore um, you know, I, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, I love games that have that element in it. I don't really play games much anymore, but I'll pick up Skyrim and, you know, kick it around for a little while for my nth playthrough. Um, I just yeah, love that I'm realm and that. Same. I'm the same. Skyrim. I yeah. love that stuff. And and you know what? It, I would love it so much more if they would just include god in the story just explain like just explain to me up front what i'm playing okay say that i'm i'm slaying the the bastard hybrid offspring of the nephilim you know that all of the monsters in the game are are a, a result of the fallen and that the big baddie at the end is you know the fallen angel lucifer so and i'll play that game uh uh well no because then i'd have a problem with it i'd be like oh shit this is not <laughs> this isn't good i shouldn't be playing this but it's funny because everything is that story just with God and Jesus removed from the equation. And then, like you said, very much with the Greek pantheon, sort of bending things to make it look like they were the good guys. You know, I, I, I've had people on the show where they'll talk about the black hats versus the white hats, but this is just the left hand path and the right hand path. And that, you know, in the instance of, I believe it was uh, Donnie that I mentioned to you before he was on my show and he was talking about how, you know, we may well see this sort of defeating of one hand by the other hand, uh, sort of ushering in the Antichrist and, uh, you know, the beast and the mark of the beast and all these different things. And that we're watching sort of a fake play play out in front of us and then you know, who knows what sort of deception they're going to launch. Uh, I was just talking to someone recently where they brought up a really upsetting concept to me of what if the whole Project Blue Beam and all of the aliens and all this stuff that's happening is really just so they can cast reasonable doubt when the rapture happens. And so, you know, they can try to con control the masses and convince them that what they're seeing is not the return of Jesus, but deceptive aliens or something. It's all very upsetting but what is clear to me is that this is the same story being told from start to finish uh we're not out of biblical times no. you know it, it never stopped happening it's funny how people sort of compartmentalize that and they go well biblical times were back then that's not what's happening now this is a story about way back when now that was a story about the beginning of all of this right now and mm -hmm. we're all it's all coming to a head um I got to admit, man, I, I, I thought I, I kind of had an idea of where you were going with this, 
and it's refreshing to see a take that I haven't seen before. When you've been looking at this stuff for as long as I have, you see a lot of the same things on, on repeat. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's it's all information that's good to have, and it helps you to, to paint the picture of the world that you're looking at. That one was new. Uh, uh, do you know of anybody else who's who's really on to this in the way that you are? No, I don't think anyone's really thought about it. I mean, why would you? I mean, why, why would you consider clowns as anything to other than just a joke? You know, it's not something. I think when a, people, a lot of the people hear what my theory, you know, the Nephilim look like clowns, they laugh at first. That's the first initial reaction. Now, this would be good. You know, this would be funny. And when I tell them, they end up going like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it's yeah. always been, it's one of this, one of this like most occulted truths. You know, that's what we do in the truth of culture. We, we just uncover things that have always been there and we're just revealing things that have, kind of just been in our face the entire time and I, all i've done is uh, i think god's just given me the ability to see a pattern and just point it out basically um it's just yeah. uh, it's just a, i've just discovered another symbol you know um which is used against us and is hit has been hidden from us for the better part of 200 years basically um and luckily it's one of those symbols that when you start looking into why it's a symbol you do have to go into the whole story you do have to go all the way back to the angels' rebellion, and the, when you're talking about the way things look, that is a new perspective from what happened. Everyone always talks about what happened, but they don't ever talk about what the people, the characters looked like. So it's kind of like, how do you really know what your enemy if you don't know what you're up against? You know, you really you have to know everything about your enemy, including the way they actually visually looked. In order to, in, how, how would you know if you're if you see one in the real world if you don't know what your enemy looks like, type of thing, you know? So it's this if it's a spiritual battle, you know, symbols matter, and if if those cultures in the world who are folk traditions, you know, they know the power of costume and makeup. You know, it says the fallen angels taught mankind the art of makeup and jewelry. That wasn't about just making yourself look pretty to attract a man. It was it was the 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 science behind dressing like a certain thing and making yourself up to look like a certain thing and the spiritual nature behind that and how it can be used as a tool to commune with the spirit realm. It was, it was a science they were teaching people for a good, powerful reason. You're going to need this knowledge to communicate with us when we're not here to yeah. channel us, to get us to, you know, and when my children are inevitably wiped out when God is pissed off with us, which he will do, you can still stay in touch with them through this power, this knowledge. And ancient cultures all around the world, even today, still practice the art of dressing like a psychedelic, trippy, hairy-covered monster thing in order to be possessed by it, to channel it, to bring it to our realm. They still do it. And they all look like clowns. And in the West... We do the exact same thing. We just don't know that that's what we're doing, which is why we're so corrupted. You know, people are dressing like clowns all over the place now. You know, people do it for fun. People are part of cults called juggalos who literally do nothing but dress like clowns and meet up every year and worship a couple of rappers who talk about murdering people who dress like clowns. And they think they're a part of something bigger than themselves that makes them feel great. But it's just basically a huge party for demons to come into our world and take drugs, have sex, listen to violent music and do horrible things, you know? And it's not just the juggle. I'm pointing them out. I know they, they probably don't realize that that's what's happening. Oh, dude, to fucking, I can't stand the juggalos. <laughs> Dunk on them all you want, dude. <laughs> but it's not just them. Like I said, it's this liberal 
far left culture that clowns them and dehumanizes themselves as much as possible. They're also channeling the same entities by doing that. You know what I mean? It's why God was so specific about not corrupting the vessel. Don't get tattoos or piercings or manipulate or dehumanize yourself because all you're doing is creating portals for those who truly dehumanize themselves to come back. You know what I mean? It's it's all connected. Yeah. It's not like he's just a he's just doesn't want us to have fun and he's a he's a vindictive over the top narcissist like people wanted to say it is. You know what I mean? It's specific rules and guidelines to not get fucked over by demons. Like it's uh, it's it's good advice. Follow it. Yeah. <laughs> Understand these things. You know, they're not your friends. The jesters on the DNT realm are not your spirit guides who want to help you enlighten to the next dimension of frequency and, and consciousness. They're demons who are trying to deceive you so they can have your body. You know, it's all it is. It's a story that has been going on since the beginning of time. It never ended. And just because you're ignorant of it, of of the law of wearing a costume, doesn't mean you're suddenly immune to its power. You know, this is a psychedelic spiritual world we live in. It's not just a physical place full of, you know, no order. It's just not just all chaos and nonsense made from a big bang of matter and rock smashing together and energy. It's it's a psychedelic spiritual world we live in. You know, that's the physical is just as spiritual as the spiritual realm. They're both one in the same place. We just our ability to perceive that realm is gone. Maybe there was a time when we could perceive that realm. But right now, you don't want to be perceiving that realm anymore because it's full of demons. It's enemy territory now. God probably put a veil on us because he doesn't want to limit our senses because he's cruel and evil and vindictive and doesn't want us to have godlike powers. He's trying to protect us from the demons on the other side who want to manipulate us and control us and, and send us down horrible paths. You know, it's there are answers for all these questions people have through my theory, funnily enough. <laughs> it all kind of leads answering uh. these questions, you know. Bring, and I think it's timely that my theory was revealed to me because during a time when psychedelics and this clown-like exploration of consciousness is so prevalent, you know, it's kind of like, no, stop being so naive and, you know, grow up is, I guess, is my final yeah, <laughs> response well, to those type of people. You know, um, uh, that was the thing. You said that a lot of people kind of laugh at the theory, but that was very much the thing that made me interested in what you had to say because... I've had my suspicions for a while of the whole DMT experience and and communing with these jesters, and I never knew how to place that puzzle piece together. And seeing your video where you're talking about connection connections between the aesthetics, you know, like the visual of of the clowns and and the nephilim, um, I very much latched onto that memory of like, oh yeah, when people do DMT, they're communing with these these spirits and they're the same things that people have been communing with forever um why do they look like jesters you know why do they look like clowns and so not only was it refreshing to hear a take that i haven't heard before but it was more than just a take it does feel like an appropriately fitting puzzle piece a big piece of a bigger picture that we we we've forgotten for the past 200 years because some asshole freemason just threw something together and kind of locked that in for 200 years. He's locked that image in and it's gone right over our heads for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it makes sense in the context of the movie it and Stephen King and everything. And so much of what you said makes sense here. I, I, I couldn't uh, tell you anything that I would uh, disagree with. You know, I'm sure maybe there's some minutia in there, but all in all, that was, uh, 
It fits really well. It fits disturbingly well. Um, I'm I'm writing a book right now, and that should be released next year, which summarizes everything. So you got that to look forward to. Hopefully, that should I can then shut up. It's all been said, and you can just read the book from there on. Is this your? Is it? What do they call it? The uh, magnum opus. Oh, so far maybe. Yeah, I'm I'm still young. Maybe I'll have another magnum opus in another thirty years time. But <laughs> <laughs> so far, yeah, this is this is a well. So the thing is that everything I'm writing, I've already kind of said. So I'm just getting what's in my head onto onto paper, basically, and um, so that you I'm, can move on with your life. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is this is my niche now. I get it, you know, but I, I do think and talk about other things as well, you know. Um, but no, I do. Obviously, I, I love this work. I love this research. I'm learning more things every day, even now. You know, I've got so much more I could have said, but as an overview, without all the minutiae in between, I've kind of summarized for you today what everything's about, what the core of the theory is. But uh, this, 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 these tendrils run deep into every facet of our creation from start to finish in our daily lives. I haven't even talked about the music industry and how it's incorporated into that or the film industry. Um, this, this, yeah, there's so much more about this, which is just confirming the theory over and over and over and over again. If I was to summarize the music industry very quickly, it's basically you dress like a clown, you'll get elevated in the industry. That's basically I can the, see summarize, the summarization of my theory is dress like a Nephilim and you will be put at the top. And that's the secret to success in the music industry. And you'll find that that's what people literally do. Uh, the channeling of demons is no different. Um, selling your soul for rock and roll or, you know, to, for the ability to play a guitar really well is dress like a clown. You'll channel the demon. You'll get the power. That's the rule, you know. <laughs> well, Paul, uh, this was a genuine pleasure. I'm, I'm honestly thrilled and cannot wait to get this episode out. I, I, my entire show is just based off of uh, me being the audience as well. I love taking in information. I love knowing that the audience is getting the same thing that I'm getting, and I, I can't wait to get this out to them. Um, and if it's all the same to you, I'd very much like to have you back for another episode sometime to talk about the minutiae, you know, some of these deeper things. Um, and so... You know, I'll, I'll be reaching out and knocking on your door again. Uh, you were gracious enough to respond quickly to me, and and we threw this together pretty rapidly. Uh, and so I really do appreciate that, and I appreciate the time that you've taken out today. Is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with? Any sort of parting thoughts? Uh, yeah, obviously, go to my channel if you want all the minutia. Like I said, there's 38 episodes there. If you go to my live show tab, there's hours of extra stuff there as well. Um, and where I do go into every culture who uses the folk traditions and break them down exactly as to where they come from, why they have their beliefs, why they dress the way they do, which all ties into this theory. I've just quickly brushed over it today, you know, with a quick brush stroke, a very broad stroke to explain these practices. So all the minutiae on my channel in a series called The Nephilim Look Like Clowns. I'm adding to it all the time. I didn't even talk about the red nose and where that comes from. I've just made a video about it. Go and look. Okay, it breaks it all down as to why the red nose is a thing in a clown as well, and it's 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 disgusting and interesting. <laughs> that's what I'll say, but it's all there. Um, so go to my channel, Understanding Conspiracy, and that's where you'll find it all. Um, again, if you want to support the book, I do have a GoFundMe on there. It's the pre-order system on there, so you can go read about that if you're interested in supporting me on the book as well. Um, and you can go on Patreon as well for extra videos, extra work, snippets of the book I post on Patreon for people to read um, maybe once every two weeks or so, my progress on there. Um, but I haven't got really anything else to say other than it's, it's been a pleasure 
being here talking to you. I've enjoyed this and uh, hopefully I've got you through that back door that you were talking about at the start of this. Um, maybe you'll come in and <laughs> check it out. But, uh, yeah, it's been good. Thanks for having me. Well, Paul of Understanding Conspiracies, uh, I'm certainly that much closer. And uh, once again, I, I can't thank you enough, man. This was a great episode and you're a, a very extensive wealth of knowledge. And, um, you know, I, I, I imagine you get a certain amount of satisfaction being able to put this sort of thing out on your show and shows like this, uh, because I'm discovering my show is, is new and I've not spent, I spent years researching, but I've not spent a long time talking about it. And it's, it's nice for me to not just create an enemy of my wife by chewing her ear off and, and telling her that the Nephilim are returning and, and CERN's opening portals and things like that. Uh, so, you know, this has been cathartic for me, both to be able to talk to somebody, but also to be able to, to, to listen to all the ideas that you have. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time. And uh, everybody can head over to Understanding Conspiracy. That's on YouTube, right? It is absolutely yeah, on YouTube. And I also, if, if, if you want to get in on the conversation, you can find me on Telegram under the same name and literally get a direct line to me. And we talk all the time on there and we're always sharing ideas. So if you have anything you want to share with me, Telegram is the best way to do it. We could email me. All the information is on my channel, but check out the Telegram group. We've got about 186 people in there right now. And it's, it's good fun. It's good fun. But yeah, that's all I can say. All right, Paul. Well, thank you very much, brother. I appreciate your time. And I know it's late over there. So uh, you have a good night. Thank you very much. You too.